So, Berto, I thought we'd just kick back and read some patron emails and respond. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. My name is Umberto Castagna, and I sell air-filled vacuum tubes. So, this first email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I was wondering if you could talk about the romantization of abuse in media. I wanted to ask mm. this because I'm a fan of and and have kind of been following the internet discourse surrounding killing stalking, which is a psychological horror comic and centers around an abusive relationship between two men. It's called killing stalking. Mm. When the story first came out, I saw a lot of people shipping, you know, relationshipping, shipping. Yeah. I saw a lot of people shipping the two guys together despite the abusive nature of their relationship. And now I've been seeing a lot of young girls on TikTok who acknowledge that the character Sangwoo Song is abusive and a murderer, but they still want to date him. I'd love to hear Umberto's views on this as well. Why is this the case, Berto? First of all, I there are a few terms in the world that I dislike more than the shipping term. I hate it with a passion. And I can't tell if it's just because I first heard it in relationship to stupid Raylo, you know, uh Ray Ray what's uh Ray and Kylo Ray. Ray and Kylo. Um but in other I hate that short shipping. But anyways, that aside uh, actually, it's got something in common with the whole Ray and Kylo. Like, one of the reasons I was so upset about that concept of like, yeah, they could end up together. is And like, they did. And they did. Is that Kylo Ren is a psychopath mass murderer. Yeah. And abusive. And Ray is like this normal, strong, empowered female. Yeah. And I'm like... And, Why do you want to do yeah. that? And because there's a man and a woman on, yeah. on screen together. <laughs> they have to they, end up together. They got to have sex. Oh, God, I hate it so much. And so uh, with, with this regard, so it, I guess it depends. I haven't seen this or if it's a graphic novel Reddit or whatever. So I, it's, there's certainly a, an angle that it could take that would be very interesting. Uh, what I will say is the glorification of, for example, serial killers that you know, there are uh, women and men that idolize them and want to marry them and date them and stuff. I find it disturbing. I find it um, emboldening and I don't like it. <laughs> so emboldening? Emboldening because it's like, oh, it's almost validating to those people. Like, right. oh, well, you see, some part of society validates me. Yeah. And we wonder why we have a culture of mass killings yeah. where the mass shooters, mass yeah. killers, vast majority men will post pictures of themselves yeah. doing it because they know yeah. like with Elliot Roger or someone will idolize them. uh the Menendez brothers or that was there was the, the one of the Boston uh bombers Boston yep. Marathon bombers was lusted after Oh by. yeah. And I was watching that recently the documentary about uh the, the, the Gacy not Gacy um Ramirez yeah. Ramirez and he just had like throngs of admirers you know? yeah I mean it's one thing to be like huh that guy's cute but I still hate but him but I still yeah huh that, that guy you know if he wasn't a psychopathic murderer maybe he would be yeah it's too bad he is so damaged and a danger to the whole world yeah but he happens to have genetic uh, traits that are appealing aesthetically. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that happened with Ted Bundy. It happens with all these people. Mm. You know, it's... it's yeah. uh, Charlie Manson uh, had yeah. tons of admirers. And so it sounds, from what you've described, that in this show there might be some glorification of that aspect. Right. 
but I don't know. I'm, yeah, so it's hard to know, but it certainly is something that we're noticing more and more. And we've, like I said, it, it's always been a thing. It's just right now, TikTok is now manifesting this human tendency. As I said in the 70s, there was known women who were lusting after and wanting to marry Charlie Manson, even though even though they knew he was going to be in prison the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, Charlie Manson was, in the 70s, the most hated person in America. I mean, he was evil incarnate, and yet... Because he was, you know, so let me get into a few factors as to maybe why this happens. And it's all just speculation because we can't open up people's brains and look at the reasons why we do anything. But um, one of the things that I think happens in like Kylo Ren and Ray or in this killing, stalking uh, horror comic is that, you know, we lose ourselves in these stories when we really like a story and I think particularly, you know, for some people like you and me, like my wife, Stacy, she'll be like, um, I'll, I'll say, remember that movie we saw six years ago? And then in this scene and that happened and Stacey will be like, I, how do you remember scenes from a movie that we saw six years ago? <laughs> like, how do you remember that? And I think it's because I, I just like that kind of art or I don't know. My brain just works that way where movies and stories and like intense TV shows really like get under my skin, you know, I'll mm -hmm. mull them over late at night on YouTube. Yeah. Lately, I've been watching clips from in Bruges. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this, uh, McDonald Farrell. Yeah. Colin Farrell. And, uh, I can't read Lee. I can't remember the other guy's name. Anyway, a very wonderful Irish actor. And then it led me down this road to watch clips from the guard, which also has that guy. The, the other guy with Colin Farrell. And, um, you know, every once I saw in Bruges for the first time, what, like 12 years ago or something, <laughs> every now and then I just think about that movie. <laughs> I just think about these scenes from that movie. And I think that for some people, they get so engrossed in a, in a storyline that they become real to us. Oh, I can relate 100% with you, not necessarily about in Bruges, but I have those movies. We're like, I've seen them ages ago, and I have to rewatch them. They come back into my mind. Um, even some bad ones. There, there, there's some bad ones that I have this like sick fascination with. For example, uh, there's a movie called God's Not Dead, which is essentially, it's got uh, Kevin Sorbo plays this uh, atheist professor that uh, you, you would think this is hilarious. As a professor yourself, imagine this. At the beginning of the, of the, of the movie... They, all the students uh, go into the philosophy class and the professor says, okay, listen, I could waste half the semester uh, going over arguments about, you know, is there a God? Is there not a God? We're going to skip all that. I'm going to ask all of you to sign on a piece of paper and say, God's not dead. And if you don't do it, you know, you, you can leave the class or whatever. <laughs> so is this like a pro-God movie or something? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's funny. Right. I think I remember yeah. seeing a trailer for this. Uh, guess what it got on Rotten Tomatoes? Like 29 or something. 12. 12. <laughs> guess what it got from audience score? Because remember, this was oh, right. marketed to Christians. Right. Right. So I'm so guessing people like you and me, I can't believe you saw it. But yeah. But okay, like a ninety, yeah, seventy five, <laughs> seventy five. All right. So, but anyways, so I I don't like the movie. I think the message. Right. So is it's bad. a it's a Christian movie about an atheist professor 
and and, and other who, other atheists who are all terrible and who, terrible things happen to them as a and result. And then they learn, oh no, God is not dead or die in the process. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally. So um, and for those people don't know, Kevin Sorbo, he's from Hercules. Hercules, the Hercules, Hercules. The TV show, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I don't like the movie. The movie's message is, is not something I'm compatible with. But for some reason, not only have I watched it multiple times, I've watched multiple YouTube videos dissecting it and analyzing the philosophy of it, analyzing a whole bunch of stuff. Wait, is this so, kind of like The Room or something? Uh, it's no, it's it, it's the room is more comedic. Like we could, you and I could sit there watch. So, but the room why would you? Laugh. I don't understand if you, if it's not like the room. Why would you watch this? It's movie? does it does it intrigue you? No, it's like I, I I okay. I don't have a good answer, but it is something where it's like watching a bad car wreck or something. I'm not supposed do you, to. Do you watch it and go like, oh, you stupid Christians? Uh, well, more like you stupid creators of this movie. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not putting all Christians down. I'm just looking at the people that made the movie and going, are you seriously well, doing this? Like, you stupid, this type of Christian. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because so, you, you have a desire to hack on those types of Christians. And, and that message in general, because that, that, the, kind of the meta message of the movie is like, oh, but, I could use but logic better, and, and reason to prove something that's not provable. You know? A better example would be a movie that you lost yourself in that you loved. Oh, yeah. And so American Psycho, which has terrible yeah. imagery. I mean, talk or about Or Star it. Wars, for example. Well, that one's like redeeming, the, yeah. Like the feeling that I'm sure you and I can relate to of Han Solo and Princess Leia kissing on the carbonite right. you know, chamber floor. Uh I believe there's a real person called Han Solo. I mean, I don't believe, but I feel yeah, <laughs> like feel there's a person in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago named Han Solo and this woman named Princess Leia, and she, they kissed, and he, she says, I love you, and he said, I know. 100%. Like, like it, it's not just this story. It's not just this production. It's not a script. It's not a, a, a movie full of actors. No. Like this is, a, this is something that really happened. As a kid, I, I really, really felt... There was a period of time where I really felt that it was history. And part of it is because it said a long time ago. But I was like, oh, and so when I was waiting for Return of the Jedi to come out, I remember like, well, I want to know what else happened in history. You know, like what else happened? Right. And people will do that too. They'll be like, like for me, when I think about episode nine, which is just so terrible, that I consider that movie to be like a fake movie. Yeah. I, I, when I when I think about what happened in that movie, I'm like, well, that one that, that's count. a that's just fan fiction. That, <laughs> right. That's just like someone writing a story about President Lincoln having sex with like you know Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt. It didn't really happen, and and but the other stuff did happen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Anyway. Kylo and Ray did not end up together. In real right. Life. That's just someone's. That's a that's a Reddit fan fiction exactly. shipping that was just not real and. Everyone knows that horses don't run on spaceships. That that's a terrible plan. And you know, and, oh my and, gosh, I forgot they and, literally had horses on. And spaceships. also, everyone understands that every one of those ships has its own navigation oh system. Especially if they just look out the window, they can tell which way is up. And, you know, there's just so many, and and no one would devise a a knife that would do that to make you stand on that one particular it's, it's just a ridiculous no, that, that's a child's script you know that's not, this isn't what in the Star Wars world this, this would never happen I love how this has turned into a <laughs> critique of the but anyway so we lose our self source number two 
we apparently as humans love to see two people fall in love. There are so many plots that involve will they, won't they. Birdo, famous examples. I mean, the whole Friends run is a will they, won't they. Uh, Who's the boss? Uh, Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Now, granted, those are deep cuts. But the point is, almost every 80s show had a will they, won't they. Yeah. So let me just give some from my list that I typed out here. Luke and Lorelai from Gilmore Girls. Sarah and Mr. Big from Sex and the City. Jim and Pam from The Office. Daphne and Niles from Frasier. David and Maddie from Moonlighting. This is the original one, David and Maddie. Sam and Diane from Cheers. That's another original. Joey and Dawson from Dawson's Creek. Rachel and Ross from Friends. George Michael and Maybe from Arrested Development. (laughs) They're (laughs) They're cousins, but are they cousins? Maggie and Joel from Northern Exposure, if you remember. Uh, Marianne and the Professor from Gilligan's Island, <laughs> which is not really a will they, won't they, but I don't know. And Mulder and Scully from X-Files. So, oh, I forgot about Mulder and Scully. We, we love, you know, and these, like, X-Files has nothing to do with love or romance, and yet we we have to insert it in there, you know what I mean? Well, and it's so bad that if they do get together, the show is at risk of ending unless they break them up again. Right. But <laughs> we love, yeah, right, we, we love the tension. Anyway, yeah. And maybe that's another point. With shipping, we love... uh, It feels very satisfying to us to have, like, uh, star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet. Um, And also, so not only do we have lots of rom-coms and romance, you know, will they, won't they, but we also will insert uh, romantic storylines into almost every story we tell, like, uh, where it doesn't call for it. So do you have any famous examples of that? (laughs) <laughs> like romance inserted into odd places. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Let's see. Sort of infamous have? examples where people are like, why are you inserting a love story in the middle of a this? A love story. I don't know. I'm sure you have a list. <laughs> well, uh, Harry, Harry Potter uh, um, isn't one of these, but I will mention that compulsively rolling or rallying, however you pronounce it, Everyone ended up in a relationship in the end, you know, a, a very, very incestuous, tight knit relationship. Yeah, very, a very um, convenient and sort of fan uh, satisfying relationship. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the most infamous one that I can think of was when Peter Jackson did The Hobbit. Oh, see, I didn't see those. Okay, well, I'll tell you that. Oh no! It, it, they one. Uh, this is an atrocious. I mean, it is. The Hobbit is a beautiful book, and Peter Jackson made it into. You're scaring me. He, he took every. Okay, so you, you know, remember from you remember Lord of the Rings how these are you know classics, but there yeah. are some scenes where you're just like Peter Jackson, why? Like when <laughs> when uh, and it was usually Legolas, like when Legolas surfed on the oh, yeah, shield, yeah, yeah. or like when where, where he goes from like a really good archer who can have greater endurance, really great eyesight too. He's a ninja jumping off of elephants. Yeah. yeah. Doing things that are physically extremely unlikely to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Where he slides down the elephant the, the the trunk. trunk. Yeah. And, and it's like, you're obviously just playing around with CGI. And the other, the other problem with those things, uh, it happened with Gimli too. Cause even though he wasn't doing those crazy things, but you know, it became to the point where, like, well, we have nothing to fear. Both of these characters are indestructible. Yeah. Legolas it doesn't is, matter is a if God. you throw a billion bad guys at them. Yeah. They'll go, and they'll each count how many billions they killed. Right. And it's going to be fine. Yeah. Whereas in the book, you get 
a clear picture that these are just regular dwarves or elves or right. these are not gods and, right. and, and, a, and an arrow coming out of the wrong place at the wrong time they're dead you know and I love that that aspect of in fact the whole aspect of Lord of the Rings that was really surprising when I finally read it because I didn't read it, read it as a kid and that I really appreciate is how understated powers actually end up being. Right. They're not throwing meteor-sized fireballs from one side of the mountain to the other. And also, the Legolas thing, you get the sense of like, wow, this guy's got elves, have crazy endurance, really great eyesight. They don't need much sleep. They've got great immune system. Fine. But that's that's it. Like, yeah. You know? But yeah, they're not... So, he took all of those... The, the worst of the Lord of the Rings yeah. and just made a whole trilogy based oh, on that. Oh, no. Yeah, it is just one. It starts off okay. Wait, I saw the first one and I almost left in the middle because they. Ha- now I remember, it traumatized me. It felt like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon with the dwarves in the mines and yeah, stuff. Yeah, It was so ridiculous. Yeah, there are, it, it, yeah it's ridiculous. So, but along those lines... Peter Jackson and his other writers inserted this love story between an elf woman and one of the dwarves, one of the one of the twelve dwarves with uh, with Bilbo. Oh boy! And it was completely unnecessary. Oh no! It didn't. It's like why? Uh, and it was badly written and played, and it, it was just it was just awful. Um, and then, of course, you know, episode nine. They, yeah. They oh, took, yeah. Of course. Why didn't I name that? Yeah. That, That's ridiculous. Why would, in the middle of Star Wars, where you have Rey. Oh, the, my gosh. You know, arguably, in the, especially in the main movies, the first woman character who is, you know, strong and independent and, and cool and admirable. And, of course, you have to make <laughs> her kiss a guy and want to be with him. And it, it's just ridiculous. So, but we eat it up you know they don't put those things in movies for no reason yeah you know they don't put explosions in michael bay isn't a billionaire for no reason you know well and it matches our physiology physiology and our and our emotions because if you think about go to a random person on the street be a woman or man but let's say it's a woman in this case walk up to them look at them in the eyes and then reach out and, and touch their hand like that's not something you do. That's that's a very intimate, very personal thing. And if that happens, it's such a strong feeling. Like you've reached out and touched another human being. You've crossed this boundary. We feel it. Hence why like we are so the whole idea of uh, of a wooing, of a courtship is so powerful and so attractive. And that's why when we see it on the screen, we get excited. We're like, oh, yeah. ooh, they're wooing each other. They might touch hands. They might, ooh, it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, number three, our culture in mainstream American culture anyway, is centered around falling in love, especially young people mm. falling in love. Uh, it is this, you know, I'm guessing 500 years ago, people, if they came to today and just watched what we uh you know, create as entertainment that we show ourselves, they would say, why are you so obsessed with romantic and lust love? I beg to differ, my friend, Shakespeare, <laughs> all the Greek myths. Well, I think maybe it's been a thousand around. years ago. Yeah. I don't know. But my, my point is, is that it's something that is particular uh, to Western culture today. Uh, if you go to other countries, I guarantee you th- there's a much different approach to uh 
romance and to what is good in life, what's in, what you're supposed to be focusing on, how much time you should be focusing on it. So it's a, I, it's I a wonder, decision that we tell ourselves. I wonder, like, I mean, I'm thinking like in Colombia and South America, soap operas were the biggest thing, you know, and it's all about that. Like, yeah, I'm not saying that in other countries it's not that way. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying that when you have a, a society that um, makes decisions and maybe has the luxury to focus on this sort of thing, because right. there were times in history and parts of the world today where right. it's arranged marriages. People yeah, yeah. don't people don't have cute meets and, and fall in love. <laughs> cute meets. You, you, yeah. you get married, you have kids, you work hard, yeah. and, and you die, and that's what you do. And and romantic love is why are you so obsessed with it? Yeah. And so um, our culture is just mega obsessed with it. Again, particularly young people. We don't. I mean, how many rom coms have like sixty three year olds in it? It's just like we just have this thing about youth. And yeah. um, number four is um, what I'm going to call it. I knew it ism. We love as a as individuals to say, "I knew that was going to happen." Oh, I knew Ray and Kylo were going to get together. Right, and so. I think shipping is kind of involved in that. It's like, because we'll see shows where two people, you know, man and woman are working together and they hate each other. And we're, and you know, maybe when we're 10, we look at that and we're like, well, they hate each other. They're not going to fall in love. But then eventually they do fall in love. And as a viewer, you feel like you were tricked. And so I think this translates into compulsively predicting shipping all over the place so that you didn't, uh, get blindsided and be made a fool of because you didn't predict it. Yeah, I guess so. It's so frustrating because on the shows where it's supposed to be on purpose, it's way too obvious for it to be valuable that you predicted it. And in movies like, oh, I predicted Ray and Kylo. I'm like, well, you influenced a very bad decision on the filmmaker's part. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just, it's, and it's, and again, just getting back to Star Wars for a second. When those characters were invented by J.J. Abrams and crew for Episode Seven, I'm pretty sure 100%. they were not planning on making no them way. get together. There's no way. But because they listened to the idiots, yeah. because of what happened to Episode Eight, or because of the reaction to Episode Eight, they're like, let's just give every fan exactly what they want. And that will be a good movie. And it wasn't. It was a, just an atrocious <laughs> ball of poo. And number five is there's a lot of loneliness in the world. And a lot of people who don't have romance in their life or not, or not stable romance. And we will project that need into other people. We'll, 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 we're hoping vicariously that other people will have it uh, because we don't. I also think that there's... A, a need to see schadenfreude romance love for some people when you have tragic romantic experiences and you feel shame about it you're like why am i having so many tragic romantic experiences mm-hmm. and then it feels good to to see other people also have tragic romantic experiences mm-hmm. it's like oh i'm, I'm not, not alone i'm not alone right. and What's more tragic than Ray and 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 Kylo getting together? What's what's more tragic than, sure. as you're saying, anonymous patron, these two characters in Killing Stocking, you know, which is a, an abusive relationship? What would be more tragic than that? You know, and so yeah. it's kind of it, it involves a, a lot of different things that we clearly exhibit as human beings. Kind of get wrapped up in, into this yeah. thing. Um, by by the way, I I don't know if you watch um, shorts like on. 
uh, TikTok or Facebook or whatever. But so, so common, so popular are these shorts where it's uh, guys or gals going up to strangers, usually at a college, and trying to pick them up in all sorts of random weird ways. And uh, you never see videos about if they got their number about their first date or their second date or their, it's only these pickup moments yeah. and I think it's the same phenomena it's like the awkwardness and the intrigue of like oh, will they won't they in that first encounter right yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. they're so popular it, yeah no one's making TikTok videos about you know like year seven and a half <laughs> when you're just sitting there disillusioned with each other <laughs> while each of you is arguing in your mind about what to watch on Netflix. Right. <laughs> um, it's much more compelling to, to watch about the beginning. Yeah. Um, the other thing just along these lines is that when two people are in a movie together married at the beginning, a very good chance is they'll be divorced by the end. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, it's like yeah. we—it's if they're the central the story's got to change. <laughs> yeah, you either have to go from single to married or married to single. You can't just like be married, which is, you know. Um, so, non-station asks: Are there any long-term effects of consuming this type of media in general, especially during adolescence? Berto, what do you think? Well, okay, definitely. I don't buy the premise that you know the video games or the movies are gonna in mass cause terrible effects for everyone that said i do think it's it's obvious that the more we reinforce certain cultural op, um, opinions and and norms in movies and media and books the more we keep repeating those in reality so i do think that it is a self-fulfilling uh prophecy uh, like a self-sustaining system I, I'm imagining this didn't start with a movie or a book or anything. I do imagine that back in the day, uh, there was actually some fascination with the killers in society, with, be it the, the heroes and warriors that went off to war and killed the most evil soldiers or whatever, or the gladiators, or actually maybe the murderers down the street. Uh, and then eventually that got put into media and then that reinforced the notion. But nowadays, do I imagine that seeing constantly the same tropes over and over has some effect in in our perception yeah i do think so Th that said um clearly not it's not true that the majority of humans are lusting after serial killers that's not true right so i don't think it's it's that powerful yeah but i think that it's possible it, it, so overall i'll say to the answer the question is it's probably not having a huge negative effect. Uh, we tend to panic, you know, about things. Young people today. And it's like, yeah, like I said, Charlie Manson was a manifestation of this in the 70s. And, you know, the society, our society didn't crumble after the 70s. So um, having said all that, uh, might it for some normalize or legitimize abuse in relationships? I could absolutely see that happening. You have an impressionable 13-year-old mind in a community of people that's very insular and supporting a an, a, a relationship type that is very coercive and, and abusive and harmful to one person where there's a real submissive role. And particularly if you maybe grow up in a family where it's like that, um, you could imagine that this would contribute to the normalization and might not in this, you know, in a similar way that porn can, in, you know, trick uh, an adolescent person mm -hmm. into thinking that sex is supposed to be a certain way. Right. 
Uh, not that they can't unlearn that, but yeah. it could cause some negative effects. Last question. Does it lead to people being des- desensitized to abusive behavior seeking out some... Um, I think I already asked that question. Um, so, Berto, you texted me the other day and you said, I have an idea for a discussion. I went into the office for the first time since the pandemic and yes. my, my mind was blown. What happened? Yes. Okay. Well... So when the pandemic started, uh, I think we all got shut out of our offices or around the beginning of March 2020. And since then, I had been working exclusively from my house, you know, just dialing in like we all dial in to Zoom meetings and stuff like that. Well, the other day, there was a, a someone visiting from a different country. And so they set up a meeting in the actual office and it was optional. I didn't have to go. But I thought... Meaning you could have Zoomed in? I could have called in, yeah. But I thought, well, I'll do it. But it was super stressful. It was surprisingly stressful. Why did you decide to do it? I wanted. I thought, well, maybe it's time. Maybe this is a chance for me. To, I haven't been in the office in so long. I wanted to go see. I wanted... There are coworkers I work with that I had never met in person. Yeah. So I'm like, well... You know, let's try it out. But it, it, it was surprisingly stressful, the whole process. And in fact... What, what was stressful uh, Well, okay, A, for some reason, even though I've seen you, I've, I mean, what am I talking about? I go to the grocery store. I go all over the place. I've seen humans plenty. But for some reason in my head, it felt as if I was going to be coming in contact with humans for the first time in two years or something. Um, I also was like sort of self-conscious about... In silly ways, like, well, what should I wear? I guess yeah. I'll wear what I normally so wear. So for right? me, that's the biggest like, <laughs> thing is, is, is what do I wear? Yeah. Because when I, so let me kind of go on a jag here. Cause I feel like this needs to be recorded for history <laughs> that when the pandemic started, I, you know, obviously was stuck at home all the time and I, I started realizing I don't really need to wear jeans anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, right. I don't even, I don't even leave the house. So I guess I'll just start wearing sweats. And then I started saying, well, you know, there's something even more comfortable than sweats. There's pajamas. And so <laughs> even when I would work over zoom, yeah. I'd be wearing pajama bottoms or, you know, sweats or something. Right. And my dress, all my dress shoes went to the very back of the closet and I started only wearing certain kinds of shoes. And then I started thinking, I need more comfortable shoes, you know, because <laughs> because when I was working all the time and leaving the house to and yeah. looking presentable, I, you know, my comfortable shoes were things that I would only wear just some of the time. But then all of a, so all of a sudden, day after day after day, it was comfy, 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 comfy. And so I just started buying more comfy shoes, more pajamas, <laughs> yeah. more t-shirts. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of t-shirts because I would, I would dress up for work. Yeah, you'd wear a shirt. And stuff. Yeah, and I found that um, I just wanted more variety in my life. I didn't want to wear the same two or three t-shirts the whole week, so I, so I started buying more t-shirts. Then by, you know, so I'm full in, you know, fully kind of, into that lifestyle. Then when the pandemic was starting to light, lighten up and I start leaving the house, I started going like, well, hmm. <laughs> but I really like wearing pajama bottoms. And so I started figuring out how am I going to wear nicer pajama bottoms outside? And I would ask my <laughs> wife, I'd be like, do these look like pajama bottoms or do they look like yoga pants? Then she'd be like, those look like pajama bottoms. And I'd be like, 
eh, I don't care. I, you know, like people can suck it. I'm, we- I'm wearing pajama bottoms when I'm going to the grocery store. <laughs> and so even though the pandemic was open, yeah, I was still essentially wearing, you know, super comfy clothes in a way that I'd never worn even at home before. Right. Before the pandemic, uh, I would wear jeans until I went to bed. You know what I mean? I just around the house, I would just wear my work clothes because, right. you know, you come home from work, you just I wouldn't change necessarily. And so it didn't really happen. didn't really hit me until I started. um I needed to go to work or I needed to go to a nice restaurant. And I'm like, I what probably I can't wear my comfy shoes and my pajamas to a nice restaurant or, or, to, <laughs> or to work. Right. Right. So, so then I'm like, where are my dress shoes? <laughs> where are my nice jeans? You know what I mean? Right. Where's my nice jacket? And I started pulling those out of the back of the closet. And when I put them on, it felt so uncomfortable because I was so used to yeah. not shackles of society. Yeah, it felt so yeah. when I the first time I put on my dress shoes, it was just a couple of weeks ago. I had a hard time walking in them, <laughs> even though before I would wear them all day long at work. You know, yeah. I just wore my dress shoes all the time. So I, I just find that to be an I, I wonder. And then I wonder from this point forward, if I'm now permanently damaged by the pandemic regarding yeah, it's not going to be possible for you to be comfortable damn it yeah like like i'm never going to go back to hard clothes well like when we were doing all our podcasts over uh over the internet while we were not seeing each other you know i was always naked from the belly button down mm-hmm. and but then, you were doing you did that at my house anyway that's true but then i also was doing it for work and then i go to the whole foods one day and i walk in and the, the clerk's like dude Where's your mask? And I was like, oh, I left it in the car. But anyway, so I show up to work and, you know, I work with vacuum tubes and, and like when you're filling them with air, like you can't be wearing crappy clothing because like little fibers get in there and stuff. So I have to think, what am I going to wear? So I'm like, well, I'll wear my nicest jeans because I, I don't want to go too much, too much overboard. My, the, actually the, the culture at my workplace isn't that dressy, but it's not, it's not, you're right, like you bought jammies, I bought tons of sweatpants. I'm not going to show up with baggy sweatpants and my like flip-flops and stuff, right? So I'm like, all right, I'll wear my nicest jeans, which felt like cardboard. Right. I was like, oh my God, I'm wearing cardboard. Yeah, and, 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 and it really made me rethink <laughs> why fashion was like that. Like, I was like, how did I tolerate wearing, and these, and, and, and my <laughs> jeans are even, they're they're kind of more on the comfy side anyway. But it's outdated because we had jeans because they're durable. Because when you're kneeling in the dirt and picking up cow dung, well, but you even know? like regular slacks or something. Um, like right now, I'm wearing shorts. Yeah, I, I'm I was never one of those guys that would just wear shorts all the time. But now I don't want to have I don't want that restriction feeling on my legs. <laughs> Well, okay, and same thing with the, what do I wear on the top part of myself? Like, a t-shirt, okay. T-shirt's a little casual. So then I I wore a t-shirt that wasn't too wacky, and then like a little jacket. And I'm like, okay. But it was all these little decisions. And then driving there, I almost turned around three times. What? Because I started feeling anxious. What do you mean? I was like, I... I don't want to see people. Well, anxious about what? About seeing real people. Like you actually almost turned around three times? I almost turned around three times. What were you worried about specifically? Um, well, first of all, I was going to be meeting 
my boss in person for the first time. Oh, you'd never met your I'd never met my boss. Because oh. my boss changed three times during the pandemic. Uh-oh. And so I was going to be like, hi. That was a little nerve-wracking. Uh, also, we were seeing uh, this person from a different country who I'd only seen on VCs in person. And that was nerve-wracking. So let me ask you this. Given your personality that you are uh, normally pretty extroverted. Right. And charming. And show up to the party, no problem. But it's were cool. you putting too much pressure on yourself? I guess so. Again, for whatever reason, in my head, it felt as if it was the first human encounter I was about to have in two years. Yeah. Even though that's ridiculous and stupid. But but it's the first human encounter where you could get fired. I get. Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe there was some weird subconscious, like, if I don't show up properly, yeah. I could get fired. Yeah. Even though that wasn't a real risk. But but because it had been so long since you'd had that tested. That's you know? true. And then, uh, oh, I should mention, part of it too was like, uh, because because I went through my health crisis, uh, then it was like, oh God, I haven't seen anyone from work since all that happened. And so I was like, and they, they knew I had an operation and stuff. So I'm like feeling a little self-conscious about that as well. But in the end, when I showed up, it was such a relief. It's like, oh, people are real, and and then we had, and then I actually afterwards I went for a few for a couple of beers with one of my coworkers. Yeah. Oh, by the way, super embarrassing. When I first see this coworker, I go, oh my gosh, I finally meet you in person, and he goes, what are you talking about? We had met in person before the pandemic, and I was so like. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then I did remember, but in my mind, I had become only associating him with meetings over over the, the internet and stuff. So then I profusely apologized. And then, but we went, I went to have some beers and it was great. It was like a great, you know, bonding thing. So it turned out fine, but it was very stressful. Well, let's take a break and we get back. More emails, what do you say, Bruno? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. Let's do some OPPs. OPP. Some old patron praise. It's easy as one, two, three. These uh, patrons became patrons back in February of 2019, Berto. Remember back then? No, that's pre-pandemic. I've lost all. And they have not only did they become patrons, but they stayed patrons through all of our BS this entire time. And there's a lot of them this month. We got Lindsay from Nanaimo. California. We got Ashley from Michigan. Nice. We have Hava from Michigan. Oh, Hava. I think it's MI, Michigan, probably. Yeah. Uh, Missouri is MO. You tell Mississippi me. Mississippi is MS. Pretty sure Michigan's MI. That sounds like Michigan. Emily from Salt Lake City. Mm. We got Deborah from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Mm-hmm. We have Miriam, who's an annual. Uh, deserving listener from Madison, Wisconsin. Whoa. We have Relika from Tartu-E-E. R2-D2? She's from R2-D2? E-E country code. What is... Any any guesses, Birdo? E-E... Estonia. Country. That'd be... That's a good one. E-E country code. Estonia, you're right. Oh, my God. You got it. I pulled that out of my Estonia. You got it. Uh, Roxanne from God Knows Where. She... She Haraz from who's an upper tier patron, God knows where. Tessa from oh. Edmonds, Washington, just a little. Oh, in the neighborhood, just a little bit north here. Lorraine from Allen, Texas. 
Chris from Astoria, New York, Valerie from God Knows Where, Paul from Norwich, Great Britain, mm. Cindy from Austin, Texas, Catherine from Portland, Oregon, Kristen from Johnson City, Texas. Lots of Texas. I wonder what who's that named after. We got Benjamin <laughs> from Monroe, Louisiana, Summer Ooh. from Austin, Texas. So we got two Austin, Texas. And we got good old Rachel from Puyallup. Nice. Rachel, Hi, Rachel. Rachel, I uh, know. So, uh, thank you all for becoming patrons and staying patrons through all of our BS for almost <laughs> three years. Don't got Okay, so, next email. Patron Susie from Morgan says, I have been recently gifted greater insight into psychosis that may inform Umberto's opinions. Mm. As my autoimmune thyroid disease dropped my organs function, it caused a rare type of madness. I became dangerously close to violence. Wow. The lack of thyroid hormone made it seem that everyone I love dearly had been replaced by a doppelganger who had taken my family, wife, and best friend hostage. So in that state, harm to any one of my doppel any one of the doppelgangers would have been to save the ones that I love, something I now know I could never imagine doing, even if my delusion was reality. Psychos wow. Psychosis can happen to the best of us. Um, did you talk about this at all? Or I don't know, like what's your response uh, no, to that? No, but I have, I've, so when I, when I realized that I had thyroid issues, I did start uh, encountering a lot of people in my life that apparently also had had thyroid issues. One of them was the, the mother of my sister-in-law, which makes her, my mother-in-law second removed or something? I don't know. Anyways, she had uh, or has um, hypothyroidism and she takes medicine for it. And she described that, that she had become, before she knew that, before she was diagnosed, she had become super aggressive and like feeling super violent. I think she, she became somewhat violent and she had no idea why. Uh, and so I've heard about this before. Yeah. Now, in my case... Uh, when I became hypothyroid, it was in the middle of overcompensating compensating for the hyperthyroidism. And I was feeling so bad, so poorly, that I, I didn't have time to wish ill on anyone because I felt like I was moribund, like I felt like I was going to die. But anyways, I have heard of this, and it sounds terrifying. What I will say is that I've noticed in my own behavior, when I get uh, a little more on the hyper side, I get a bit manic, um, and I get short tempered uh and then when i get a little bit more on the hypo side things bother me a lot mm. more than normal mm. i get super irritable about little things uh so i can only imagine uh, and yeah the thyroid controls so many things i'm not surprised it would actually trigger some really bad stuff in your head yeah, I, I don't know that much about this condition. I, I, I've, I know it's a diagnosed condition psychiatrically for some. The little bit I know about, um, I don't know how it relates to the thyroid, but there are some people who will have brain damage, an injury of some kind from a stroke maybe or a surgery. And there's this, uh, I, I remember uh, hearing in class, there's this uh, theory of our, perception of our relationships that goes like this we uh we have several different sent you know parts of the brain that are involved in putting together who someone is to us mm -hmm. so like when i'm looking at you right now berto you're you know you're across the table 
and there's a there's all these visual uh, realities that I'm seeing: your hair, your eyes, the way you're moving, this kind of thing. But uh, yeah, as Berto is doing silly movements, but there's a uh, so that's going through. Uh, uh, I, if I remember right, there, there's there's two processes that are happening at the same time. One is is just the visual. A model that's being created in my mind based on the neurons that are firing in the back of my eyes. But there's this other thing that's happening where it's matching up with my emotional uh, associations with the visual thing. You know, when you look at a flower, by the time you're a certain age, you don't just see the pixels, you know, the back of your head. Right. You, you can smell it. It reminds you of summer, you know. And when we look, when I look at you, Berto. I remind you of summer. You can smell me. <laughs> yeah. There's this real there's this feeling i get from it you know i'm not just i'm not a computer looking at a at a pixel i'm a squishy you know organic biological machine that is processing things and i process it through this emotional association center and when i uh have an injury to that emotional association center it people will report that the people that you know, are in their family, they'll say that person looks like my wife, mm-hmm. but they are not my not, wife. Right. Even, and then you're like, well, how, how could you, how could we prove to you that this actually is your wife? Um, and it's say, well, I don't know. The person would know my history and then the wife will know the history and they'll be like, mm, no, you're still not my wife. That's you're not, so you're scary. not really so scary. Yeah. And, and, and so yeah. the thyroid, fluctuation must have well the thyroid affects a lot of nerve uh nerve function uh so for example at a basic level uh uh, when you start getting hyper you you start feeling all sorts of weird buzzing sensations throughout your legs and body and stuff it's just nerves like getting affected uh hypo can also do this so at some point and again i don't know the the details but i'm imagining that in severe hypothyroidism, it can affect your central nervous system and maybe areas of the brain. Man, that is scary. scary. Yeah. Yeah. Famous patron Ed wrote in and said, Hi, Kirk and Umberto. Just listened to today's episodes on dealing with failure, and I feel compelled to chime in that I, too, got fired from my first actual paying job as a school psychologist. Oh, it was 1993. So famous patron Ed, for those who don't know, active participant on the Facebook fan page. He got fan of the year last year, I believe. Wow. Um, so he says he got fired from his first therapy job. At an elementary school, there were some very difficult kids, but I really enjoyed them and connected well with them. At mid-year, I was told by the principal that I was not, quote-unquote, assertive enough, uh. and they had doubts about keeping me on for a second year. I see now that it's laughable because like at your internship, it was literally my first year on the job. How was I supposed to be assertive? Uh, The teachers and students loved me and respected me, by the way, and the other psychologists as well. Shortly thereafter, because I was affected by this, you know, thing that said you got to be more assertive or we're not going to hire you next year. Shortly thereafter, in a very high-stakes meeting about a student with lawyers and psychiatrists in the room, I was feeling pressured and under the gun, and I had a very public panic attack when it was my time to speak. I was fired the next day. Wow. It was the hardest thing I'd ever experienced. I have this surreal memory of driving around and hearing Natalie Merchant's Carnival a zillion times that summer and feeling lost. 
all these years later, it still stings, even though I've had an amazing run as a school psychologist and I've developed a full private practice. But I'd say to the patron who wrote in or any other person about failure that you need to hang in there, learn from these things and not give up. And I'm glad I didn't give up. That experience is part of what makes me the person and therapist I am today. So good episode, the two of you. It definitely hit home for me. Famous patron Ed. Yeah, nice. Man, that sounds rough, but yeah, good on him, man. He stuck with it. And um, I mean, you know, in life, it's so hard to second guess yourself or it's almost a fruitless endeavor to second guess yourself. There's a lot of things where I go back and I think, oh, you know, I wish I could go back in time. And if I would went back in time, I would do this different. I would do this different. I would do this different. But in reality, any any different choices you make along your timeline end up in a totally different timeline and you have no idea what that what yeah. comes from that. So the fact is you can only act on the data in front of you and it takes a lot of courage to when you're seeing data in front of you that says you suck, you're fired, to sit there and have courage in your conviction and say, well, but this is what I love, this is what I want to do and so I'm going to persevere. It takes a lot of courage. Well, and it takes, for me, mentorship to tell me that you're okay give it another shot like, oh absolutely that like, would, I would never have given another shot I would never have had the quote unquote courage if I drew logical conclusions that I was not made for this career since I got fired and told in many ways shapes and forms that I was a terrible human and a terrible therapist yeah I mean that's the thing when I hear these stories including my own stories it's like where is the responsibility of the people that are your seniors in charge of you that are telling you this like yeah. do they hold n- bear no responsibility well so yeah they, they, <laughs> they bear no responsibility and that's why I wrote an entire book on supervision yes. um, a big reason was because of this experience I right. had um, because I was completely failed by super by that supervisor and uh, frankly of the I don't know uh, 17 20 uh, supervisors I've had in my career most were uh, terrible, and, and it matches up with the statistics when we actually ask people mm-hmm. to you know rank your supervisors. They uh, ask you know are they abusive? That would be terrible. Are they like not useful? That would also be terrible. Or are they useful? And most are either not useful or abusive. Oh my god, that's horrible. And, oh. and but then you look at Berto. What does it take to be a supervisor? What is it, you know, how, how do you get the job as a supervisor? What do you think? Aggressiveness and, you know, like stomping on others. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would think there'd be qualifications that you'd have to meet, right? Yeah. Like you'd need certain trainings yeah. or some. And uh, there's nuances to this in the various different professions. But generally speaking, you, you need extremely minimal qualifications. Well, like, yeah, like in my case, years and years ago, I... I was an individual contributor in my job and I was really good at it. And so my manager goes, Hey, you're really good at your job. So I'm going to make you a supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want to, cause honestly, I, I liked just being, yeah. so I was like, being good with vacuum I, tubes gives you no abilities to manage human beings. Exactly. But, but, but that's so, so common that you are like, well, you're really good at doing this one particular thing. So I'm going to put you in charge of other humans. Um, and they're not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, anonymous patron Esmond from Minneapolis, he writes, Did many saints of Newark justify a sequel to the Psychology of Tony Soprano, Psychology in Seattle episode? Mm. <laughs> After seeing many saints of Newark, which I really liked, in spite of many lukewarm or negative reviews, I listened to the Psychology of Tony Soprano, Psychology episode again, Psychology of Seattle episode again, that episode focused on oh that episode's focus on the hair checklist the psychopathy checklist was super interesting. Um, what m- the many saints of Newark made me interested in was Tony's relationship with his mother Livia, his relationship with his dad Johnny, his relationship with Junior, his relationship with Dickie Montesanti. The tagline of the poster is "Who made Tony Soprano." By posing some interesting questions in this movie, I think the movie succeeded in giving the psychological depth to Tony that we see in the HBO series. Johnny Boy seemed like an aloof, superficial, and absent feather figure. How did that affect Tony? When Johnny Boy was in jail, how how did Livia treat Tony? Did she parentify him, in, and in what ways did she abuse him? Was there more than emotional abuse there? Why is Junior intent on knocking Tony down a peg by repeatedly pointing out his failure <laughs> to be a varsity athlete? How attuned are the adults around Tony to Tony's true interests, desires, and aptitudes? Why does Dickie Moltisanti emerge as a surrogate father figure to Tony? And how did Dickie's eventual shutting, shunning of Tony affect Tony's psychology Berto, what do you think? Yeah, actually, so you and I both watched it, and um, I liked it, and yet a lot of people disliked it. I read a lot of reviews or watched a lot of reviews on YouTube, I should say. Um, they made good points, but I, I still enjoyed it. I thought it was it was there was a lot of good stuff, yeah. and I agree. They went richer with uh, all the sources of of both positive and negative, mostly negative <laughs> influences uh, to Tony. Um, what's interesting about it is they made, I don't know if this was purposeful, or, but they made it seem like Tony was actually a lot better adjusted in some ways and that it was mostly his environment that, that turned him. Mm-hmm. And I I guess so, but I, I would have expected by the age they showed him that he was already engaged in way more than just stealing an ice cream, ice cream truck based on the show that we had watched. In other words, hmm. when I saw the series, I would have imagined that as a teenager, he would have already been in, in some serious trouble. Yeah. So I don't know if I ever thought like what he was doing specifically earlier on, but the way that the movie did it was one totally in line with the way the TV show was. Cause you know, the TV show rarely just laid out like, this causes this. Right. And, it was never a black and white situation. Yeah. And uh, a, a cheesier, because, you know, where else do we see these kinds of stories? Well, we see, you know, the first Batman movie. How, right. did, how did Batman become Batman? Well, because the, 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 and the and the necklace fell on the yeah. floor. And so what are you going to do? Right. How did, there, was a, there were bats in the cave. Like, what else? How did Joker become Joker? How did Spider-Man <laughs> become Spider-Man? Yeah. They, we have all, you know, these, these very... Uh, obvious connections with childhood and adulthood, but in reality with human beings, it's much less um, clear. And it would, you know, to, because the thing that I really liked about the, if you don't know, Many States of Newark is a movie, it's a, essentially about, so 
You know, Sopranos is about Tony Soprano as an adult, a family man, and he's a mobster. Many States of New York is when he's like 17 or something. And the thing I really liked about the movie was, as a teenager, he's just a regular teenager. Yeah. He, he's a teenager in the mid-70s, I think, and he's just doing mid-70s teenager things. And they're a little rough around the edges, but he's not like a killer. Because why would he be? He's just a kid. And you especially know what I mean? because they're what they showed, which... I hadn't caught from the series because, well, of course they didn't show it, is there were some people in his life purposely trying to not steer him into that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, because they wanted better things for him and they didn't think he needed to be that way. And so, but at the same time, it wasn't like they were really trying hard not to steer. So the, what we see is a real typical family really uh, a typically dysfunctional family you have a, a absent father you have a, a a stressed out mom who's narcissistic and uh, doesn't doesn't care about other people yep. you have two siblings with or three siblings you have tony and his two sisters that are just kind of lost and just trying to live their lives and trying to eke out a little bit of fun or self-esteem and you have at the center of the movie you have Dickie Molsasanti, who is his, uh, his uh, you know uncle or friend of the family, and and he's the only he's the only character in this movie or and in this world who seems to have a little bit of um, you know morality to him. <laughs> you know he's trying to make the world a better place, right. even though he's in the mob and and he's kind of stuck in that. But he's he he in each interaction he's like okay let's not destroy the world in this, you know, let's, let's try to, you know, do a little bit of good here. And then he kind of bonds with Tony and he's like, I, you know, I want, I want Tony to have a good life. I, right. I want him to be a different sort of a person. And cause I see how horrible this can be, you know, look at my life. Um, look, look at my relationship with my dad, <laughs> look at my relationship with my dad's girlfriend, you know, like, so he's really trying to help Tony, and then, and then in the end, he shuns Tony, but not uh, not because he wants to, but because he feels he needs to. Right. He he's yeah. trying to shun him because he's trying to because he doesn't want Tony to be wrapped up in the mob. Right. And he shuns him, and then and then that's the last, uh, and that kind of culminates in that last scene. You know, Tony's like, you know, Uncle Dickie, you know. Uh, you promised to me you'd buy me beer or something. Yeah. You know, let me in, let me in. And and Dickie Moldsanti's just ignoring, ignoring, ignoring. And then, uh, so at that point in the so that's why. So at that point in the story, if it just ended that way, Tony might have gone hanging out with hung out with the jocks and just you know became a regular uh, working stiff. But then Dickie Moldsanti gets whacked. Yeah. And is dumped somewhere. And so then Tony's like, oh, that's why he didn't answer the door. Yeah. So now he has an absentee father who then prompt, not promptly, but eventually dies as well. And now he's got another secondary father who does die. Who gets killed by yeah. bad guys. Yeah. And now Tony gets the inkling for revenge. Yeah. And, you know, he's at a crossroads. He could, but he chose. And that's what's so consistent with the Sopranos TV show is there were these key, many, many key moments where Tony Soprano could go one way or the other way. 
And nine times out of ten, he, he always chose the <laughs> yeah. wrong way. Yeah. He always chose the evil, murderous, self-destructive way. He chose right. to kill Chris. He chose to kill yeah. um, uh, Ralphie. You know, yeah. he 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 chooses to look the other way when this other. You know, there's there's but occasionally he would choose. But when he was seventeen, he yeah. could have chose, right? But he didn't. I will say, um, I, I knew I knew different kinds of kids as you did too uh, when I was growing up, and I could tell already in like seventh grade who were gonna be jerks and assholes in society, and that was the one thing that I thought was not quite right. Is that yes, he would have been doing normal teenage things, but you would have seen he would have been a dick. He would have been a, a well, bit he kind of was. Bully. I mean, he wasn't like. Yeah, but a he glowing was, example of, and maybe they showed him a lot with his family. In which case, he would have been putting on a bit more of a nice persona. But I don't know. It, that's the only part that I'm like. He felt a little too cher- cherubic at times. Like, like no, he would be a he would be a bitter a bigger dick than this. You know. Yeah. Now they did show some things like where he like steals an ice cream truck. Okay, like, who steals an ice cream truck? <laughs> yeah. But anyways, but I, I did enjoy it, and I agree with your points there, for sure. Yeah, and then you ask um, Esmond about, you know, what we see. I will say that, you know, what we see with the father and Livia and Junior was almost like almost too on the nose in some ways. Like, um, I don't I don't remember learning anything new. I'm like, oh, that's just those characters younger acting in very similar ways that they would have acted yeah. when they were older. You know? The scene where the father comes back from jail, I saw this critique on one of those YouTube videos and I sort of agree with it because all he was fixated on was that there were black people moving into the neighborhood and the video pointed out and I, I and I, I tend to agree with this that in reality, even a racist prick doesn't show up from jail and yell at their whole family about how the you know, like, they're first going to be like, oh, hey, what's going on? And then after they get a drink in them, they're like, by the way, what the hell is going on? You know? Yeah. Like, so it was, a li- like you're saying, a little on the nose. Like, okay, yes, we get it. He's a racist prick. But yeah. <laughs> there were a few moments like that. At the same time, I felt like they were trying to balance giving the audience a little bit of sugar. Like, we wanted to see Uncle June say, like, he does not, doesn't have the makings of a varsity athlete. That was kind of fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. Yeah, and then I I think what we can also learn about the story, the fictional story is that where they all came from must have all also been very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't see the making of Junior. We already saw Junior as a very problematic person oh, already. Yeah. The the mother and the father, you know, cuz the question you would have, but we, we had flashbacks in the show that showed, yeah. you know, that the things from, but, in, but it wasn't this detailed, but you know, one of the questions you could have about Livia is, did she become jaded and cynical as it, because of what happened to her in her adult right. life from the movie? It's like, she already was a jerk. Right. Although, and I did like this aspect. So there, there was that one moment where, um, I forget what it was like, Tony's like, hey, uh, was it a song or a story she would read him or something like that? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. And for a second, her maternal instinct right. shone through. And then, 
Like if she pulled right back, you right. know. So I, you could get that sense that well, there used to be a little bit more of a semblance of a maternal figure, but she, yes, to, she was always a bit of damaged goods, and then she just got worse and worse with age. Right. Same thing with Uncle Junior. Like he was clearly not as embittered and resentful at all times. However, he was already feeling like he was being passed over. He was already feeling jealousy. He was already, you know. Yeah, he was always a vindictive, jealous, insecure yeah. uh, kind of joke, yeah. right? And, yeah, and everyone kind of treated him that way. And so it's like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, um, I really liked the movie. And it, it kind of stuck with me. And I want to watch it again. And I think that... Um, well, you saw... I didn't watch any of the critiques. Would you say that the critiques are... And critiques are critiques. People can take it however they want to take it. But do you think it was partially due to the fact that they wanted it to be a shoot 'em up where it was like, Tony, kicking ass? <laughs> uh, I'm sure some of them were. The ones I watched, I actually thought were fair critiques. And they were really more about... Um, they were critiquing it the way they would critique any movie. Like, this scene was a little chopped up, you know, like stuff like that, as well as some of the uh, on-the-nose things or whatever. But I didn't agree with all of it. It was just like, okay, those are fair points. I I imagine there was a set of people that were like, oh, because we even discussed it. The preview kind of didn't do it justice. Yeah, The preview made it look like this was going to be young Tony kicking ass. Right. And I was like, well, no, there was one scene where, and actually totally out of context from what you would have thought was, right, right. you know, like that fight had nothing to do with Tony being a bully kicking ass. Yeah. And I also consider it to be a, a Chase, what's his name? Chase? David Vince, Chase? David Chase, yeah. Uh, he notoriously, and I think uh, to good effect with Sopranos, was constantly subverting the totally. audience's desires. Totally. Yeah. You know, he, he would, he, he would he sort of knew, like, I know you want chris to actually win yeah and become i know you yeah. want the series to end and he overcomes his drug addiction yeah you we want him yeah. to overcome his drug addiction we you i know you want him to be with right with the girl what's her face um his girlfriend his wife yeah adriana adriana, adriana. Uh, and i know you want him to succeed after uh tony is is gone you know because big, big pussy is gonna find a way to turn it around and right. like maybe you know, and they'll, they'll work it and pa- out. And Polly isn't a dick. Polly eventually, well, he is, but he eventually becomes, he, yeah. he becomes likable. And then, right. And, then, and, and, uh, <laughs> and um, I know you want, uh, what's his face? Um, the Furio? Or? Uh, no, the uh, the other guy, there's Polly, and then there's Pussy, and then there's. Vince, uh, yes. The guy from, from, from the, the E Street Band. Bada Bing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Silvio. Silvio. I know you want. Um, Silvio to just die or to come back, but we're just going to leave him in the hospital in a yeah. coma. You know what I mean? And, and the Russian. Oh, I can't wait for the Russian. Yeah. What's going to happen with the Russian? Right. So with Game of Thrones, yeah. since everyone wants Clegane K- gang, gang, game yeah. or whatever. Wait, bowl. Clegane K- K- bowl. Clegane bowl. They got Clegane bowl. They got Clegane bowl in this really stupid way, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it was epic, and it was, but at the same yeah. time, it's like... Uh, David Chase is like, nope. What I'm going to do right. is I'm going to make a movie about Tony Soprano, and he's just a kid. But I'm the movie is going to be about this other guy that you never even or you barely oh. heard being referenced, Dickie right. Moltisanti. <laughs> I will tell you one unfortunate angle that was taken in a couple of the reviews I saw, and this was, oh, 
they made this big deal about like racial divide and like animosity between the Italian mobsters and the right. blacks and that's totally made up and that's ridiculous and I was like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> that has gotta be a joke like they had a problem with that right yeah I mean so I felt like that did feel like a little bit of I don't know if it's pandering is the right word or just insertion or something I did, it didn't bother me but I did when we I was like this is kind of an interesting side you know a B story to this yeah. that doesn't seem to be like central and it wouldn't make sense that it was central because of I don't know just the history of that family you know it it, it did have a feeling of cuz what people on the internet will say today which I don't think is uh, as true as they say it is that you know the woke police are writing scripts now to write right. write in people of color and women and LGBTQ people and it's all just this PC movie making you know like oh, of course the new Star Wars gotta have a woman at the beginning and I'm just like why wouldn't it have a woman <laughs> you know like but I think in the many states of Newark the that storyline although was interesting and I kind of I kind of liked how it, the thing that it did for me was it situated it in history. I'm like, oh yeah, that's because I, I know that was things that was happening in the 60s and 70s were these right. race race riots and, and protests and stuff, and so it it just kind of helped to historicalize it to me. I also felt, of course, I can't be in his mind, but I felt the chase was actually trying to make a point, like because a lot of the narrative of the mob and it was shown in The Sopranos and and stuff. So, is woe is us like we're only doing this because we got to survive and we've been treated terribly in this country and oh my our we came as immigrants and what else are we supposed to do and because that's the narrative when you when you hear these these gangsters talk they're never like yeah i'm a bad guy i like and they're always like hey man i just i just do what i gotta do to survive you know like right. like and and i think there was this contrast with like you want to talk about real social problems like these people have it really bad right so, and I, I, I got that sense. I don't know if, how much he was intending. Maybe he was just on a PC kick. I don't know. But I got that sense from it. Yeah. Like, your problems as a group don't justify you going out and, and terrorizing people and killing them. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't really <laughs> read that. But, but I, if that came across, that makes sense. So, anonymous patron, she wrote in and said, what is your favorite Smith song, Birdo? Uh, it's got to be please, please, please let me get what I want. Right, right. It's it's a really great. It, it's sort of a very odd song, you know. Like, and he already sings in a very interesting and unique way. Um, but it's got like the way he sings it evokes the feeling of the lyrics, like this longing for like I haven't, you know, been happy in such a long time. Like I just need this. Like, yeah. just, let me get what I want. Yeah, J- just this one time. Yeah, I this song when I first heard it when I was I don't know like fifteen or sixteen it had a huge effect on me. I mean, there's some other great Smith songs that I listened to in the '80s: "Girlfriend in a Coma," obviously "How Soon Is Now," "Charming Man." Um, stop me if you think you've, you've heard this one before. There's a there's a whole slew of them, and and the songs are so timeless. You know, the it's it's right in the middle of the '80s, but they're just it's and it's complicated the the bass lines are fascinating the obviously the guitar johnny marr the drums are pretty good but 
but please, 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 the lyrics and the you know the production short. The, the first time I heard it was on, I think it was the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. It was like the closer, I think, and. Yeah, I. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. That song, because because there's another version of that song on one of their albums, but oh. um, I was mainly familiar with the soundtrack version, and that's usually the version that people know about. Berto, favorite Depeche Mode song? Oh yeah, but not tonight. We've talked about this before. Wait, so we both have the we coincide on Smith song and, and Depeche, Depeche Mode. Mode yes, yeah. but not tonight is um, is another song where. It's kind I, of a similar uh, depressing vibe yeah. as Please, Please, Please. Yeah, So, but not tonight. And actually, I never knew that it was about uh, like overcoming alcoholism um, and I guess in a bigger set sense, dependency. But I, I never really knew what it was about. It, it didn't matter. I always felt that the song evoked imagery so vividly, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, God, it's raining. It, like immediately you're like oh yeah I can I can get it. it's like nighttime it's raining but I'm not complaining yeah well, oh you're not, and it's it's interesting immediately like because yeah we associate rain and media movies everything was like oh it's raining it's time to be depressed it's time to be bad but all of a sudden I'm not complaining yeah in fact it's filling me up with new life yeah like what yeah it's it, it, it there's this you know. Imagine there are some people when they want to get jazzed up and, and sort of energized, they listen to s songs like um, "We Will We Will Rock You," yeah, or even like "America" by Neil Diamond, or <laughs> and or is that one song "We're America" or what? I don't know. Yeah. But for me, what gets me going is sad, happy songs <laughs> like "But Not Tonight" or "Please, Please, Please." These songs. I, I feel more energized after listening to him. Oh, you know, like yeah, like absolutely. the image of, and we've talked about this many times before. But just to go over this, this, and, and actually for the thirteenth, I gave you a, a poster with all these lyrics on it. On yes, the, on the cassette yes, I, I have it hanging on my wall. <laughs> and but just to drill down on this, oh God, it's raining, but I'm not complaining. It's filling me up with new life. That feeling when I first heard the song again when I was about fifteen, sixteen years old. I knew exactly, or I felt I knew exactly yeah. what he was talking about. Like the feeling of going outside. Mm -hmm. There's something. There's all these associations, like being a teenager and having freedom. You know, to to go out into the world at the age of sixteen and, and do whatever you want to do. And nighttime was usually when those things would happen. And you know, in Seattle, it gets dark. You know, like uh, early, so it's night a lot of the time <laughs> in, yeah. in, the, in the winter months. And that feeling of uh, it's raining, but I'm not complaining. In fact, I feel energized. This yes. is giving me new life. Man. Like I want to take on the world tonight. I want to do everything tonight. I want to. I, I want to do things tonight. I want to live life tonight. Um, and sober. You know, when I'm I was in chills. high school, I, I didn't. I didn't drink <laughs> yeah, or anything. Of so you, we couldn't relate to. But, the literal but, meaning, but but, but but it is kind of literal meaning in that he's saying I don't want to drink tonight. Right. I want to just have a sober, awesome yeah, yeah. night. You know what I mean? And so the very beginning, you know, if you've ever written a song, coming up with a immediately catchy lick, an immediately catchy melody is, is hard and it's rare. And that is so simple and yet so immediately com 
complex and captivating. It's like dun 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 dun. Yeah. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. And, and I know you have um, <laughs> listened to every part. You know, there's so many different instruments in that song. Mm-hmm. I covered this song, yeah, as you yeah, know, yeah, and yeah, had mentioned. to and and by ear like studied each sound and tried to emulate it. And so, it, yeah, it's just a it's a perfectly written and produced song. Anyway, um, uh, runners up. Dreaming of Me by Depeche Mode. Dreaming of Me. Everything <laughs> counts in small amounts. Of course, enjoy the silence. See You was a early favorite of mine. Shake the Disease. Question of Lust, I love. Never Let Me Down Again, Blasphemous Rumors. Um, you know, when I was making this list uh, earlier, I realized that even Violator, I- I'm not... I loved Violator when it came out. Listen Violator, to-, to me, is... Top five best albums. Yeah, I listened to time. it. I listened to it like nonstop, like 1990 or whenever it came out. I think. But I think you're heading in the direction that a lot of your favorite songs aren't on Violet. Yeah, yeah, like when I have a go-to Depeche Mode playlist yeah. time, um, I, I'm not jazzed about Violet. Music for the masses and Black Celebration have a ton of. Yeah, and and even earlier, you know. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, so one of, one of my favorites is uh, sometimes, sometimes, only sometimes, and that song is about uh, like being honest and being in the spotlight and being okay with being embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, I and remember laying, it, laying your soul bare. Yeah, I remember. You know, it's funny looking back at at those songs because in the eighties, Depeche Mode had such a um, aura around them of mystery and Europeanness yeah. that when they had really simple lyrics and songs like that, I always just figured it was it was ironic. Mm, like interesting. I always figured they must be playing with this a little bit because because ah. they can't because they seemed so transcendent as right, humans. Because right. this is before the internet. So if the you know the the lens that I could see Depeche Mode <laughs> through was their videos and their album art. Right. And, and actually in, in the songs that were so well produced where every sound mattered. Yeah. Cause you know, there's a lot of songs where you can arrange them in a billion different ways and the song still shines through their arrangements, their production yeah. was so meticulous and yeah. And dark noises yeah. and anger. And, and I get what you're saying. It's like, you don't imagine that that was coming out of like normal human beings. Right. There's this enclave, conclave yeah. of European vampires. They were right. You know? Yeah. They, they live in some underground <laughs> industrial zone yeah. and, you know, live off of oil or something. Um, she also asks uh, anonymous patron, my, our favorite cardigan song, Bert, I don't think you have a favorite cardigan. I only song. have the one. Wait, love me, love me. Is yeah, that? love fool. Love me, love. So my favorite cardigan Say song it. is is Holy Love. Um, it's a beautiful song. Uh, uh, really, there's so many others cardigan You've songs. You've been after have. me. Like you know what? I'm gonna either you need to recommend a playlist, or maybe I'm just gonna listen. Really, to any other albums? Honestly, really? uh, Gran Turismo, Super Extra Gravity. So I'm tired of not being in in the know. Um, Explode or implode is a great song. Um, the one song I can't listen to is Love Fool. I. I think it's, <laughs> I think if one. I hadn't had it overplayed to me, I would yeah. be like, "Oh, that's a fun kind of quirky song." But since it's it was so overplayed in what like yeah. nineteen ninety eight or something, I I cannot listen to it. Um, then she also asked, 
do you like Interpol, Berto? Yeah, when it, so when Interpol came out, well, I'm not a, like a huge fan in that. I didn't end up following them too much, but when they first came out, it was so refreshing. Now, keep in mind, time is weird. Uh, Interpol came out in the what late nineties? I don't know. Yeah, and to me, it felt like it had been decades and decades and decades since Depeche Mode and 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 Joy Division and, and New Order. So when Interpol came out basically very influenced by that. I thought, oh, they're bringing back this music from a hundred years ago when my grandfather was a child. And instead, it was only a few years later. But but it was great. I thought it was a, kind of a throwback. They had a really cool style. Some of their songs I really enjoyed. Um, that said, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I could name songs now because I haven't heard them for years. But I was really into it when they came out. Yeah, I love Interpol um, and uh, still listen to this day. Uh, uh, people sometimes say, like you say, brother, a throwback. But to me, I think that they're it, it, eternally like new and unique. And yeah, I mean, well, and, and to be fair, I only heard them when they first came out. And I, I think their first album drew fairly a lot of comparisons to like New Order and, and stuff like that. But to me, that's like saying the Beatles are just like Elvis or or the Beatles are, you know, just like um, uh, Buddy Holly or something. It's like, yeah, but um, the Beatles are the Beatles. And of course, the Interpol isn't the Beatles. But, <laughs> but Interpol to me is, is so good and so unique and so... Um, so much better than a lot of the stuff that they're compared to. I'm like, well, unless you're saying that they improved on it greatly, because, you know, as a person who grew up in the 80s and listened to New Order, there's there's some really bad New Order tracks. Yeah, but you got to understand, some of the best New Order is some of my favorite music. Totally, and, and, I, and I get that. But, yeah. but I, to me, I, I just appreciate Interpol for what it is, yeah. as, and every band has past influences. Yeah, yeah. And... um. Yeah, PDA, the the EP version, I've listened to thousands of times. Um, I've played drums along with it. It's a real fun uh, song to play the drums to. I kind of learned how to play the drums, trying to emulate Interpol's drummer. Some of the songs are impossible to, to emulate because the drums <laughs> are just, like, really particular. But, um, but yeah... Um, so, yeah, my favorite is PDA, the EP, the EP, the EP version. Um and it's just a beautiful song. And the bassist in that band is just possibly the best bassist that's ever lived in rock. Like wow. he, he is so imaginative and so groovy and so interesting. And he, the, the, cause you know, the guitar parts are, are real strokesy and simple, you know? Right. And so it, the bass has a lot of room to like move around right. and, and, and he really does. Which and, was the case in the order. Peter Hook basically would write melodies on right, his baseline. Right. Yeah. Um, and my favorite uh, album is Turn on the Bright Lights. Antics LP is pretty good. But Turn on the Bright Lights was the really the first album that I... I'm going to have to go back and now listen to more Interpol. Yeah. Um, really good stuff. And uh, right up my alley. Uh, it's it's like strokes adjacent to me in, <laughs> in a way. And... Uh, um, and I love the guy's voice. I love his choices. And his lyrics are so interesting. Because similar to how I was talking, you know, we were talking about mm -hmm. Martin Gore and, you know, sometimes. Yeah. If you really listen, if you just read the lyrics to an Interpol song, it's like 
if you just take it literally, which I think he might even be kind of, I think he's so meta, the uh-huh. lyrics writer, that he's like, I know that you think because of how intense our music is that our songs are going to be about like these really intense things. Uh-huh. But I'm just going to write about extremely mundane things <laughs> about life. Like if you read the lyrics, it 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 looks like that's what he's doing. Interesting. Um, but when you hear him sing, you, you and you're not really paying attention to the lyrics. You're just like, oh, there must be something really intense going on there. You know, like some kind of drug infested orgy that he was a part of, and someone died. But when you listen to this stuff, it's just about like PDA, like public displays of affection, or or someone coming over and sleeping on your couch. You know, and and you don't like him there. Like there's these really mundane things in, in his <laughs> lyrics, but. It's like, I, we talked about this the other day, but I, I recently had made a, a cover of Born to be Wild. And that, as I was singing the lyrics, I was like, oh my gosh, this song is about nothing. Like, sure, it's literally like, I'm born to be wild. But the lyrics are like, you know, get your motor running, head out on the highway. <laughs> you know, like, it's, yeah. it's not a lot, but it feels a lot bigger when you're actually singing it, you know. When you're singing along to it, it's so much energy. Uh, famous patron Linden wrote in and said, which albums were equivalent to The Phantom Menace to you? Albums which you wanted to like so oh, much. Oh, I have this list, yes. You wanted to like so much, you eventually had a, had, a, had to concede were flawed or opposite al- op- albums that grew on you. So which albums did you love at first and then realize, no, it's terrible, or I don't like this, but it grew on you, bro? Give me a second. I'll tell I'm, mine. I'll tell yeah. mine. So mine um, was the second Knack album. So people know about the Knack, as you know, My Sharona. Uh, and that was their first album in 1979, 1980, called Get the Knack. And people who don't know, uh, they were basically like the Beatles. They were huge for like a year. Mm-hmm. Or a year or two. And um, the whole album, similar to Cardigan's, My Sharona is one of the weaker songs on the album. That whole album is just a jam. I mean, the, the drummer is just like amazing. And the harmonies and the songwriting and the guitarist and the bassist, everyone's really great in that band. Get the Knack is a great album. And their second album was highly anticipated. I mean, this was yeah. like, you know, Beatles number two album. <laughs> and it flopped it has a pretty good jam on it that's obviously trying to you know draft on the my sharona thing because it's a similar kind of song to my sharona but it pales in comparison but the rest of the album is like not great and i always wanted to like it because Mm -hmm. of how much i loved and just to give you an idea of why i love the knack is in my house growing up, we had like, I don't know, 30 albums, 30 LPs. So that was all you could listen to. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I don't know why, was Get the, the Knack. knack. Yeah. And so at the age of 10, I'm listening to this music that's every song is about lust and about wanting to screw <laughs> your cl- <laughs> classmate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, But I didn't understand it. But I just, 
it, it got under my skin at the age of 10 years old, you know, and defined what rock music, what pop music <laughs> was, you know, and, it, and it's so pure. So I think if I heard that music for the first time today, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good to 80s music. Right. But, but at the time, but at the time, it just completely and it is still very, very good. I, I, I think it is that great. But anyway, Berto, what what album? All right, so I have two here, and oh my gosh, you're gonna, I'm gonna lose so many points of respect from so many people around the world, including you on one of them at least. So one of the Phantom Menace albums for me is Radiohead in Rainbows. Yeah, I, I that's my favorite Radiohead album. Okay, so here's the thing: I love Radiohead. Everything up to uh, everything up to Kid A is great for me. Um. Then they went through a period of like two or three albums that I, I, I it's fine. I just wasn't into them, you know? Yeah. And then in Rainbows came out and I thought, okay, they're coming back. And I bought it. You didn't I, have to buy it. It was free. No, I bought it. You, you donated. Oh, whatever. Fine. Okay. Yes. But because I, I, I only said that with emphasis because I never used to steal music ever, but I got it and I was so excited and I played it all the time and I loved it. I, I played it on repeat while I was working at home on my computer in and out over and over and over. I was like, oh my God, this is so great. They're back. And then like Phantom Menace, over time I was like, I can't remember any songs. And then I went to their concert and I was so excited. And then every time they would play an rainbow song, I was like, huh. So I don't know what happened to me. Maybe my brain is damaged now. But for some reason, that album made me realize that I had, they had left me. That's the first Radiohead album I actually really liked. <laughs> That's so bizarre. I wonder, now I want to hear it again, because honestly, like, if you right now were offering me $6 billion, I couldn't name, let alone sing a song. Well, so like Led Zeppelin, uh, their names sometimes rarely connect with the actual song. Sure. That's fair. Um, and their latter stuff is so anti-hook related that yeah. there's it, it wouldn't surprise me if you yeah. couldn't sing one of the riffs but you know? that album was a little less like that than some of their previous albums there i don't know i think maybe yeah. what happened is you just found like i don't think i like this and then you got real angry but, i did because yes. i think if you re-listen to it there's probably at least three songs where you're like, okay, okay that is yeah. a solid. Fair you know, enough. That's probably song. right. Because, like I said, when I first got in and started listening, I liked it. I thought, oh, great. Because, um, like, I'll say, like, I guess Amnesiac and whatever the one after that. They're, you know, like I have only respect for their musicality. They're geniuses. They're amazing. But it was a style that left me. They went a little too further off into different directions. I just wasn't that interested. Whereas this one actually kind of started to rope me back in. For whatever reason, though, it didn't do the trick. And then the second one for me, this one also, oh my gosh, so many of Ron would probably disown me as well. But uh, Songs of Faith and Devotion by Depeche Mode. Oh yeah, I'm not a fan. Okay, so here's the deal. I actually, there's a few songs on that album that I really love, but to me it represents a couple things. First of all, it was the first album past violator yeah it, it's it, it represents the end of depeche mode <laughs> exactly because and i went to see this concert. and the beginning of grunge by the way exactly i went to see this concert and they had they had sort of gotten really self-conscious about being an electro band and right. they were like okay we need a drummer hey one of us uh hey you you play drums yeah and we need to become a little harder edge yeah uh, gahan can you just like 
yeah. sing a little more and grow your hair and grow your grow hair. Your hair will be a little more rocking. Yeah. And they lost me. Yeah, and Martin Gore started playing guitar. And they lost me. Well, I mean, he, I guess he always kind of played No, he did, but, but it just, they got a little more into like that whole persona. So, and then the songs, there were, again, there were a couple of songs in there that I actually... But that really one liked. song is so... Wait, no, I just started. It's going to change here. Apparently, Martin Gore discovered like a blues riff and just like decided to repeat it over and over again. And I hate because like I hate saying these things because I loved all their previous stuff. But anyways, yeah. A similar thing happened to me with REM. So you know, as an '80s REM kid. Fables of the Reconstruction, um, you know, early albums, Murmur. I loved them. And then when, uh, when this one goes out to the one I love, Which I uh, love. document that, yeah. that album, late 80s, um, I was pretty into that album. But, uh, and then their next album was, um, in 90, which, you know, shiny, happy people. Right. No, no, actually, Green was after that. And that was uh, Stand in the Place, place where, where You live. live. And then after that was uh, Shiny Happy People, Out of Time, I believe it's called. Anyway. Which one had uh, their big first MTV hit? Uh, that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Uh, gr- green. Okay. Is that green? That might be green, yeah. Um, it's in that zone. Um, but at, so at the time, I was really into those albums, mm-hmm. you know? And listen to them nonstop. Looking back, <laughs> I cannot even listen to Document. I can only okay. listen to their first four albums, okay. which are I, I consider to be genius, <laughs> you know, genius albums. Which I don't, I don't think I know at all. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's well, like, you know, um, uh, did you ever call? I waited for your call. No, I don't. Uh, I don't don't know. go back to Rockville. Nope. I don't know any of this. Oh, it's so good. See, I don't. I am completely uninformed on early. It's R. it's really down to earth. Mm-hmm. Um, very uh, upbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing cheesy. Like their latter yeah. stuff. Like you know that suit. You know, uh, everybody hurts. Like yeah. that stuff. You know, it's fine, but it's so different very from, melodramatic yeah, yeah. really melodramatic and yeah. obvious and it was i guess it was their version of grungy angst yeah you know yeah they're getting obvious i guess i, I guess it just influenced everyone the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> um the uh another uh kind of similar situation fpl that i'll say is the knife the band the knife i think they're swedish band you remember you know heartbeats the song but yeah. Yeah, it's, it was. It's such a jam that yeah. song. Any if anyone if you don't know the band Heartbeats by the Knife, the listen song. to it. It it hits you right between the eyes <laughs> in the very first beat. Like it is such a jam. And when I first heard this song in you know two thousand seven or something, I instantly ran out and bought like anything I could get my hands sure. on with the knife because I was like, this band is so it's good, amazing. Nothing oh. of their other stuff is anything close. I don't think I've heard any of their. In, in fact, it's almost an it's it's an art uh it's an art band, okay. and they obviously are trying to create something that's 
extremely niche in terms of its appeal. You know okay. what I mean? They're not. Okay. They're really trying to subvert the appeal of the masses. Right. Another situation that happened was MGMT. Oh yeah, yeah. Similar time, two thousand seven, Ocular Spectacular, which you gave to me, which is behind yeah, us right which now. It's just amazing. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. You know, so much buzz. Oh, they they so were good. huge. You know, you had kids. And you, you and I jammed to this. I mean this yeah. is This was hugely influenced, oh, you know. Yeah. In fact a lot of the songs I wrote at that time were influenced yeah. by that album. It was it was like this is the new Beatles. Like they're they're gonna be huge. Yeah. And they have all the buzz in the world. They there were uh elementary schools that were singing kids yeah. the song, you know, and posting <laughs> on the internet. Like it was everywhere. And then, you know, their their next album comes out in two thousand ten. They like took a long time. And it was so anticipated, it's called Congratulations. Not a good album. <laughs> like it didn't have any of the jams that ocular spectacular and i think had. they they from the documentary i saw i was like they did it on purpose you know they yeah like, because they're like you yeah. want us to just give you another ocular spectacular it's we're, we're not, not. going to do that we're we're too anti-establishment yeah. man like hey that's that's what freedom is all about yeah yeah um another album that i think about that was elliot smith his posthumous album from the basement on the hill i don't know that one well so you know he died killed himself and he was making an album at the time and so the people rushed into the studio and like finished all these unfinished songs and they're not good and he was obviously struggling at the time and having a hard time that's not fair man that uh, I mean that what you one shouldn't do that yeah like an artist should have final say over their product Um, another album is Prince's albums after Around the World in a Day so you have Prince from 1979, you have Dirty Mind from 80, you have 1999 from 1982, <laughs> you have Purple Rain from 1984, and then you have Around the World in a Day 1985. These are five like very good, particularly 1999, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day. Yeah. His next album after that, I don't even know what it was, but like pretty much from that, because you know, I was locked in on Prince yep. in 1985. I was just like, I'm a, I'm a Prince person. And whatever album came out after that, I bought it, listened to it, and could not get through it. And there's some few shining moments like Alphabet Street. But it's just, it, it, is it that that became too random? What do you mean? Like, um, okay, I'm thinking like the Batman soundtrack. Well, that's just, that's a, he wrote that as a background soundtrack. It's, it wasn't, I don't think, supposed to be listened to. Like, it's okay. a, okay. I hate, you know, we actually heard that song recently when we were at that event. Yeah. It's not really music. Stop the press. Who yeah. is that? It's, it, I mean, it, if you're 12, you'll you'll consider... Batman. Yeah, you consider that music, but it, <laughs> if you have any taste in music, it's basically just him having fun with drum machines for a, for a movie soundtrack. It's yeah. supposed to be played behind credits. But it was a hit on the radio. I know, but why would anyone <laughs> want to put that song on? It's terrible. It's anyway, yeah. um, so uh, I think what happened was... Prince is such a genius that he got bored yeah. with writing like appealing music. Yeah, yeah. And he's just like, but I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and around the world in a day is you could kind of hear the transition there. He's like, he's pulling away from the obvious pop music, but it's still poppy enough for me to listen to or mm-hmm. still in the zone that I want to hear him. After that point though, it's, it's, he gets, he gets really kind of, 
I, I maybe experimental. I mean, there's some shining moments for sure. But anyway, so listener Bianca from Boston wrote in Berto. What are the psychological effects of watching someone be killed? Just to switch gears here for a second. Uh, I have a question regarding the psychological impact of witness of the witnesses to the George Floyd murder. Many spoke about feeling helpless as they watched officer Chauvin press his knee into his neck. I wonder what other psychological effects a bystander might experience from such an experience. Berto, what do you think? I've always wondered about this myself. I have not witnessed um, someone being killed in person. Luckily, I, w- I would say luckily. Uh, but I've always wondered about it. You know, whenever I watch a movie or I read about terrible news stories, I always wonder, man, how horrible. Now, I happen to be on one end of the spectrum. I didn't grow up on a farm, so even the idea of killing a chicken to me is sort of very difficult to process. The idea that there's this breathing, living organism that's got self-direction and it's got senses and everything, and then we grab it and then we like slice off the head and then it like shakes around and blood squirts that to me is difficult enough to process let alone you know then a bigger animal like a, an ape or a cow or something it's like and then when i think about a human yeah i mean it i feel like it would immediately be very 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 traumatic to me to witness something like that and if i were in a position where i'm seeing it happen by people in authority and I'm aware that if I try to intervene I might get shot myself and so then out of fear of my own life I, I can't I don't and then I'm start then I have that guilt and the um, terrible nightmares after that yeah I, it's horrible I would imagine that the people that witness that will never be the same yeah absolutely it is traumatic we know this in our field and in other fields. People in the military will come back having seen death happen. Yeah. Uh, watching family violence. We know this to be abusive. Um, online videos. Uh, there, are, there are two online videos of death that I accidentally saw that are burned into my brain and... I don't think it it it, it was good. Yeah, <laughs> that those things got burnt into my brain. See, I, I intuitively had this feeling uh, when I was a teenager that I would ne- never want to see that because I remember. And look, I love horror movies. I love watching fake death all the time. Yeah, but um, my friend Ron at the time had gotten a copy of this Faces of Death. Do you remember this? Oh yeah. And who knows how much of that was fake or not? But he's like, "Oh, you should come over and watch Face of Death," and I was like, uh, "No." And I never did, and I never wanted to, because I, I had this feeling like watching an actual death, it, it would be something traumatic to me. Yeah, it, it, and it can be. Not for everyone, but it can be. I mean, the uh, speculation I would have is that you're watching even a video of George Floyd being murdered in front of you. It is scary because... What it tells us is that could happen to us. That could happen to right. someone I love. That's a police officer, or at the very least, that's another human being. Yeah. And if I can't trust them, police or other humans, what does that mean for me and my life and the people I love? It's it it gets under our skin and, and makes us extremely afraid, which makes sense. 
patron Ina, she says, is it possible to grieve a TV show as if it is a person? I watched this popular cartoon show called Adventure Time, and it ended uh, seven seasons recently. The two main characters had grown old. Oh, spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> Might want to skip forward 10 minutes. Uh, the two main characters had grown old by the end and died and were reunited in the dead world. Uh, throughout the episode, I had such a strong emotional response to the, to the feelings of the characters. And by the end of it, I was so filled with grief and despair. I can't even watch the original series anymore without thinking about their journey of death. And it's hard for me to view the characters in the same light enough to watch it like I used to. I know this feeling will pass and that it's normal, but I have a habit of becoming really immersed in whatever show I'm watching, and it's hard for me to differentiate myself from the show sometimes. I was wondering if you could talk about this psychological phenomenon, if it even is one. For context, I am neurodivergent. I've noticed that I become intensely invested in TV shows, and I'm just curious about this thing about me and if it's normal or whatever. Berta, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, in general, kept, we were talking about this before about how um, we are very affected by movies and, and things like that. So I I can say that, for example, there were a couple movies that I watched that the the stuff that happened in the movies was so traumatic to the characters, and yet I knew that it was just characters, and yet I could relate to it uh, as an example, you know, one of the movies was um, uh, um, Kramer versus Kramer, uh, and it's uh, Dustin Hoffman and um, what's her name? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, yeah. And then they're going through a divorce, and then they have this kid and stuff. And and I could relate because my parents got a very ugly divorce when I was a little kid. Um, and so even though it's I'm watching a movie, it's characters, and I love that movie, but there was a little bit of re-traumatization from watching it. Like I remember, and as an adult, you know, just watching it, being in tears and being like, oh gosh, and feeling so strong to the point where it really almost felt like I knew these people. Like I know that little boy. Like I know these, you know, I guess as a result of me putting myself in that position. And, um, and th these things can feel really real and really intense. Uh, yeah. You know, it can stick with you. Yeah, like the movie Irreversible that we talk about sometimes. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. French movie that has a, a, a scene, particularly in the middle, that is, again, burnt in my brain. I, I can't unsee that. Yeah. I know it's actors, right? Yep. It's actors. But yep. there's a scene in which someone is sexually assaulted, by the way. In a brutal way. And it's just like, oh, wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, that is um, extremely disturbing to me. But I think this is a little different than what the what patron Inna is talking about, is that the grief like of of watching, I don't know, like The Office or something, and you get to the end and... Uh, oh, you mean like like losing those characters because the show's ended? Well, not only that, but but the but the characters died. You know, has that ever happened to you? Where where y y it's a show, it's long lasting, and you're you're you know you know mm -hmm. the Sopranos or something, and then all of a sudden Tony's dead, and and you, you just intensely like <laughs> feelings of of actual despair. Yeah, something. I'm trying to think of a show where I've had that experience with. Yeah, well, I, that's a good question because 
shows that you follow intensely over years and then they come to an end. I mean, and, then, I, and then someone dies. I, I, well, I mean, I had that feeling with The Sopranos to a certain extent. No, actually, definitely. And in fact, uh, fiction, reality became fiction because uh, uh, the actor, um, Gandolfini, died in real life yeah. at a very young age. Uh, I think that one thing I can really relate to is Game of Thrones. Like when... When uh, Ned... When Ned, when Ned dies and when <laughs> yeah. Rob dies. And I think a lot of people had this, right? Yeah. Or when... Yeah, um, oh, actually, no, that's that's another great point because the whole first season, you're becoming really invested in Eddard Stark. Yeah. Like, you're going to follow <laughs> this guy. <laughs> and uh, I was reading the books. So imagine... Oh, yeah. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine... Said, Wait, what's the rest of the story about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then when Rob died, I'm just like, what? And then... Uh, yeah. The Viper when he dies. <laughs> Certainly. Oh, gosh. You're right. That's reminding me because like the Red Wedding, I think all of us collectively, it became such a meme. It's like, y- you've killed Christmas. You've killed my childhood. Like, yeah. What happened? Yeah. You killed the mom and Rob. Yeah. Like this is not supposed to happen in any show or movie. Yeah. He was Ever. supposed to march south and kill Joffrey and, you know. This can't. Ha- yeah. Um, but I will say, I actually, the, the whole Tony Soprano thing. I did go through a period of pseudo depression when Gandolfini died because it was like, wait, Tony did die then. Like mm. he's dead. Like, yeah. and it was, it was bizarre. It was like this surreal thing. Like I, I get that that's a character. I get this as an actor. I get the things are not connected. And yet it felt like that really happened. Yeah. Right. So patron in a, I think what we're saying is it's normal. Yeah. Uh, you get really invested in a show. Um, that's, I think, why a lot of shows are good. You know, that's yeah. what makes a good show from a bad show is it's compelling and and you get really invested in the characters and you kind of insert yourself into the story and and it it feels real. And when they die, then it it's it's really hard. Um, but you also mentioned that you're neurodivergent. I don't know if you're if you're saying you're on the autism spectrum, but if you are, which I don't know if that's what you're referring to. People with autism, some people with autism can become fixated, hyperfixated on certain things. Not everyone, but essentially it's an obsession on a person or a or people, whether it be fictional people or even someone in you know in your real life. And there are pros and cons to this fixation, of course, is you're you know if if you're on the autism spectrum and you're uh, you know prone to becoming fixated and you become very fixated on adventure time and you're just really into it and it feels you know very intense and you think about it all the time uh, you that means you're really enjoying the show and you might get in the fandom group and you're hanging out with other fans and it, it it's fun you know to be with other hyper fixated people and you know that community um, the con is stuff like this where if they die it'll hit you like a ton of bricks. It'll hit you like, you know, it was your parents or something, you know? Oh, actually, you just reminded me of one. Uh, Spoiler alert, alert, alert. Uh, By now it's late, but uh, when Dumbledore died in the book, Hmm. because, you know, it was like one of these moments, like I'm sitting there, book six, and he dies. And I'm thinking, where's the trick? Oh, they cast some sort of spell. And he's dead. And he doesn't come back. And then book seven starts and he's still dead. And I'm still grieving him. And he never comes back. I mean, he comes back in like a little vision thing. But 
I, that was that was impactful because I had grown very attached to that series, very attached to that character, and he was a father, grandpa figure, whatever. Yeah, it really felt after he died, especially in the way that he died, that this is like a this is becoming dark. Yeah, the story is becoming dark. It's legitly legit. Yeah. Um, let's take a break, and then after that, more legit questions. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. Let's do some OPPs, Birdo. What do you say? OPP. So these people became patrons. So this is a long list, Birdo. Oh, be- really? Because... We had an influx? Well, this is the month that I released the Attachment Deep Dive. Oh. So um, a lot of patrons signed up. Jumped on. Uh, that month. Wow. <laughs> so get ready for... Th- Usually we will read like... So these are people that became patrons in a particular month in the past and have stayed patrons this entire time. That's the key. It's like they became yeah. patrons, but they stayed, they're loyal. Loyal. Patrons. And, uh, usually we'll read like, you know, 10, 15 people. Yeah. This is, uh, it could be, I don't know. It's a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> so we got Bonnie from God knows where we have Zoe from God knows where we have Brooke from Mansfield, Texas. We have Sally from Olympia, Washington. We have, we have Lori from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We have Tim from, Arizona. We have R. Reed from Atlanta. We have Caribou from God Knows Where. We have Rudy from God Knows Where. We have Daniel from, who's an upper-tier patron from God Knows Where. We have Linda from Mer- Pasadena, Maryland. <laughs> Pasadena, Maryland. That's funny. I didn't know there was a Pasadena in Maryland. Martina from God Knows Where. Janice from Las Vegas, Nevada. We got Taylor from Vancouver, Washington. Wow. We have Mr. Murderbird from Huntsville, <laughs> Alabama. We have Lisa from God Knows Where. We have... Priyanka from Manchester, New Hampshire. We have Rebecca from Portland, Oregon. We have Hannah from God Knows Where. We have Byron from College Station, Texas. Mm. Catherine from God Knows Where. Kelsey from Charlotte, North Carolina. Michael from Pomona, California. Aaron from Wisconsin. Holly from Houston. Marion from Marin from God Knows Where. Emily from London. Great Britain. We have Elizabeth, who I think we've connected with from Chicago. Nadia from Oslo. You've been there, right? Yeah. What did you like it? Uh, wait, no, not Oslo. No, I've been to uh, Stockholm. Oh, Stockholm. Uh, Gonzalo from Madrid. You've been there? No, I've never been. We have Joel from Edmonton, California. I huh. have been to California. <laughs> Rachel from St. Louis. You've been there? No. <laughs> Tammy from God knows where. Have you been there? I have been there. Lauren from Nashville. You've been there? No. Nashville's nice. I've, I've basically I've not been to ninety nine point nine percent of the world. <laughs> Uh, Thor from God Knows Where. Lola from Chicago. You've been to Chicago? I have been to the airport. Janet from God Knows Where. Robin from Vancouver, BC. You've been there? Yes. What do you think about Love Vancouver? Love Vancouver. Yeah, we have so many memories from there. Sky from Brisbane, Australia. Is that how you say that? Brisbane? Brisbane? Uh, uh, I think it's pronounced Barbie. <laughs> we have Aaron from Portland, Oregon. Natasha from Australia. I think we've communicated with Natasha. Fabian from uh, CH. What do you think CH? Um, Country code. Czechoslovakia. You think? CH is Poland. Code is Switzerland. Oh. What? Uh, Oh, Zurich. Anyway. Uh, Despair. 
Bonia from God knows her, Jacqueline from West Hills, California, Andrea from God knows her, Lavania from Chicago, Mallory from God knows where, Alexia, Deb, Josie, Johnny, Caitlin, Kaylee, <laughs> Mag Magdalena from Stockholm. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. See, I know Stockholm. Uh, the Jana from Bavaria, De- uh, Germany. Jill from Issaquah, oh. where I grew up. We have Vicky, who is a upper tier patron from Lansing, Michigan. We have Jessica from Seattle. Nice. We have Mary from New Jersey. Stuart from Washington, D.C. Melanie from Sedona, Arizona. We have Anastasia from Illinois. Jenna from Texas. Sarah from California. Danny from Quebec. Maya from New Jersey. Helen from Lancashire. Lancashire? from Great Britain, Jason from Blackburn, Great Britain, Anya from Oxfordshire from Great Britain. So it's three Oh, from Blackburn, Lancashire? Oh, maybe. That's in the song. Dave, uh, <laughs> Lynette from Seattle, and Lisa from Melbourne, Australia. Woo! Wow, wow, what an epic list. Yeah, I mean, all y'all were motivated, I think, by the Attachment Deep Dive in March of 2019, and you've remained patrons this whole time. That's incredible. And y'all just made me bore all the listeners with this long-ass list. Um, but thank you for being patrons, first, and two, with sticking with us. Through- thank you for being a patron. Listener Barb says, Is it a mental illness to believe conspiracy theories? Anti-vaxxers are paranoid of government and pharmaceutical companies. Religious people believe <laughs> Hillary Clinton's run a child pornography out of a pizza shop, et cetera, et cetera. These people only want to view alternate news sources. Seems delusional. Can you speak to this, Berto? Is it a mental illness? Obviously, that would be too broad of a categorization. I am imagining that there are definitely people on any number of mental illness spectrums that um, are in those groups. I would would say, I, I would bet as a layperson, that there's probably a higher incidence of certain kinds of uh, mental uh, disabilities or, or mental um, issues that uh, end up in those in those uh, groups. That said, I also know you know people even in my own life that fall into those categories. I, I've also watched many documentaries about people that are flat earthers and and other things like that, <coughs> who would be really hard to say at a at a glance at least. Oh yeah, that person's clearly, uh, you know, has something clearly wrong with their head, other than the fact that they're subscribing to those notions. But honestly, people are um, convinced of a lot of things, and uh, humans are not great. Uh, in, in humans, don't have genetic code that makes them great uh, detectors of BS and detectors of right, like logic and, and things like that. Well, so, well to, uh, another way to put it is the environment we evolved in. Uh, you know, over the span of a million years, you know, closer to our recent species evolution or emergence, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't government, there wasn't politics, there there wasn't science, there wasn't news, there wasn't uh, trying to decide whether or not your activity by driving a car is contributing to the global warming and what does that even mean. We We did not evolve the ability to... Uh, determine or to um, evaluate these kinds of things. Yeah. You know, our, our survival didn't depend on, but our survival did depend on our ability to draw connections uh, between things like, oh, 
when the sun is higher in the sky, more people start dropping because of, you know, I don't know why that's happening, but people are passing out. Maybe those things are connected. You know, we are, we're connectors. When it's raining more, the crops grow. Or when I hear this sound, it means there's more, uh, the herd is over there. And so therefore go, go kill a thing and eat the herd. Um, We're, we're very good at making connections. And so uh, our evolved brain being not evolved for the complexity of our current information world, but being evolved to make connections creates conspiracy theories. Yeah, and I think that what what is weird is that clearly there is some healthy set of humans that are able to kind of see through the superficial connections that one might make and are able to say, well, actually, maybe there's a better way we can approach this, maybe a more systematic way. Maybe we should try to, like, run experiments and see what works and doesn't work, right? And so over the years, we developed sciences and all these things. And to your point, like, there didn't used to be an internet. And so the the things that people would learn generally were a little bit more manicured. They were well manicured. You know, you'd have to go get the encyclopedia, And that was well edited and, you know, lots of review boards and stuff like that. So to find a book on some random conspiracy is not something you could easily do. Right. They probably wouldn't have gotten published. If they did, it was not like in every bookstore and things like that. Yeah. There were gatekeepers. Nowadays, anyone can publish anything easily. Yeah. And if you just get a few followers now, I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other thing I'll say, and we've been over this ground before, that... There, is, there are, research shows this, whenever you find a group of people who are adhering to a conspiracy theory, particularly the vocal people, there is a higher incidence of delusional individuals. And this is something that people forget, you know, like people will po- post pictures or videos on Reddit of like, look at this Karen doing this and that. And I'll watch the video and I'll be like, that person is obviously struggling schizophrenic. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. they're having an episode. Yeah. They're you know because they're screaming at you about like you know what's the what's the frequency, Kenneth, or something. Yeah. And th- these people are filming, being like you know, uh, and then she starts spouting like racist things because yeah. she's delusional. Um, yeah. And it doesn't make it okay, but I'm just like, did it ever cross your mind that she might not be on her meds, you know, or she might have had some kind of medical problem? Like, don't assume everyone is is sane, you know. And yeah. uh, so along those lines, you'll see someone at a rally waiting for JFK Jr. to show up. Yeah. And it's quite possible that half the people in that audience are on a spectrum of schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, because I think people think... Well, once you have schizophrenia, you get locked up or you you get forced on meds. No, there are you have freedoms. If you have schizophrenia, you have full blown delusions. And unless some special circumstances happen, you're just you're just a regular citizen with all the rights and the life of a regular citizen. You have an apartment, you go to the grocery store, you you could have a job and your symptoms might come and go as well. Um, So uh, that's another thing to think about is that if you're looking at people and you're going why in the world do you believe that having said that i think sometimes we can go too far with that and think they're all you know suffering when uh many of them are are not diagnosable at all well and in some extremely misled and or very motivational reasons right 
And in some of the conspiracies, like as an example, the flat earth, and, and I know this because I just watched this like a uh, couple hour documentary uh, following some of these people. It was on Netflix. You might have seen it. No, it's, I didn't. Okay. It's kind yeah, of I think it would be too painful for me to watch. Uh, it doesn't focus too much on like, well, anyways, it might be. Because like the QAnon, uh, you know, uh, documentary painful. on HBO was painful yeah. for me to watch because I'm yeah. like, it just focused so much on the delusion that I'm like, I can we yeah. move on? Because uh, yes, I get it. They believe ridiculous things, and they read ridiculous things into ridiculous posts. Can we just well go to chapter two? But the whole documentary, yeah, you know, was well, th- that. this documentary, I don't know how you'd feel, but like the point wasn't so much. In fact, the people they showed, let me put it that way, the people they showed didn't come off by and large as uh, like you know, crazy, like unredeemable, you know, psychos or something. No, no. They were mostly all pro- ex-professionals or professionals, a lot of them independently wealthy, uh, that were, uh, you know, th- their main flaw was not actually understanding what is scientific experiment means and what proof means in that sense. Because what they would do is they would say, well, look at this. Like, you know, they'll make one of those claims. Like, well, the ship goes down and the, the, those kind of like casual observations, right? And in fact, in the documentary, when they, a few subset of them actually try to conduct an experiment, first, they found out just how hard it is to set up an experiment properly. And second, it didn't confirm their hypothesis. And yet, they kept going with the hypothesis, yeah. right? So they just don't, they're not scientists. They don't understand yeah. what science means. But they didn't come off as like, delusional or psychotic or something like this that said there was clearly something about them that was stubbornly trying to adhere almost counterculturally to this narrative right I th- so i think that there's a it's like being a punk rocker or something yeah. you're just like look uh this is who i am now yeah and uh, that's it's my identity and and i'm a flat earther yeah. you know it that's who i am it, it 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 fits with so much of who i am like i'm i think i'm better than other people i think i'm smarter than other people i i distrust the government and science and authority and this provides me a very uh convenient way to manifest all of right. my personality traits you know yeah, yeah. um having said that berto you know i bet you if i watched it I wouldn't be convinced that they weren't schizophrenic or they weren't delusional because you can come across because, yeah. you know, again, there's this idea of like if you suffer from schizophrenia that you're just like obviously, you know, bonkers. But um, I've talked to people who are in the throes of a delusion and there is nothing detectable about them mm, until you hear them talk. Okay. I mean, I the very first delusional person I talked to, uh, he sat down in my office. He was the father of one of my clients that I'd but I'd seen him before but just me and him this time. And he starts talking and he's telling me all these stories and I, and I, you know, I'm just gripped and he gets to this story about like him and the, these, these other guys stole like all these fur coats and they were being chased by these helicopters and they mm. made it across the border from Oregon. You know, it was very elaborate and I'm just like, Whoa, this story is like wild. And, and I'm, you know, I'm believing every word because yeah. why wouldn't I? You know, it's just everything he's just telling me is just. And then also, and he looks out the window and he he says, um, "Oh, and also see that guy outside." And and I look outside and it's this guy dropping off his kid at the agency, and I didn't recognize him, but it just looked like a dad dropping yeah. off his kid, you know, uh, pulling up in a minivan that kind of thing. 
And he's like, yeah, see that guy? Um, he's following me. He's part of the, he's part of the FBI. Right, right, right. And I look out the window and, and I'm like, I'm like, really? You know? And then, <laughs> and then like half a second later, I'm like, oh, <laughs> he's, he's delusional. He's, yeah. cl- that's a classic, yeah. you know, persecutory delusion. It was possible it was an FBI agent, but, but not likely. But not likely. And so as soon as he said that and it clicked in my brain, my, I, I actually felt physically disoriented because mm-hmm. I suddenly had to rewrite the, everything he had said to me up until that point. There was nothing about his demeanor that said there was something up. Yeah. It was all just in how what he believed and what he said. Yeah. So someone could be in that documentary and in the th- full throes of a schizophrenic, you know, delusional yeah. episode and not exhibit a- any other ancillary symptoms. I'd be interested in your, because in, a couple of them, like the two main characters is the guy, this gal, and they've been at this for years. They run websites, they run groups and stuff. So you'd have to believe like they're constantly like, you know, but yet, Right. That's le- that's less likely yeah. to be a delusion if it's consistent like that. And and when they talk about it, because some of them, I would buy it in an instant because they say they they're like they're they're adding so many layers to the narrative about what's at the edge of the world and who is in charge and how does it work, like all these things. Right. The fiction is so elaborate, whereas some of them are a little bit. They they leave it all very fuzzy because they mainly just want to make the point that the world is flat. (laughs) And like there's one of them that I don't even know if he believes it or not, but he makes flat earth quote unquote globes, like flat earth models. Flat earth plates, I guess. Yeah, but really elaborate, very like he's clearly an amazing hand handcraft uh worksmanship. A worksman, and he makes these amazing models and they buy them and stuff. But I don't even know like does he actually believe it? I I, I'm not sure. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they believe not only that the Earth is flat, but there's this massive world conspiracy. Co- conspira- right. Yeah. So even if you did give them evidence, of which there's evidence about You're part of the conspiracy. Yeah, they're just part of the conspiracy. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. like you, it's, a, it's a theory that you can't prove or disprove because there's this all-God, powerful, uh, conspirator group that is, you know, can do anything they want. Yeah. Uh, it's basically, yeah. Going to Discord here to Easy Pod Questions channel. Uh, people can submit Easy Pod Questions. Uh, Nini wrote in: Is it common for some people with abandonment anxiety to overcompensate by by pretending someone fell in love with them? Is it common for some people with abandonment? So, Berto, you were abandoned yep. when you were young. You might have had some abandonment anxiety when you were a kid and mm-hmm. beyond. Did you ever overcompensate by pretending someone fell in love with you? No. Pretending someone fell in love with me? No. Like like playing a game like, oh, that person, my no. teacher is secretly in love with no, me. No, I never did. But, I mean, I'm, I could see it because, you know, there's other things I did to cope. For example, um, with females, if a female ever didn't show me affection or, or maybe was mean to me or something... I would cut them off instantly. It was like a a defensive thing. Like, okay, well then we're done. Like zero to one, you know, zero to hundred. Did you ever um, um, falsely? <laughs> I know the answer to this question. Actually, I don't know if this exactly fits, but 
did you ever falsely believe that someone was into you and take action based on that false assumption when it wasn't true? No, because I was always in the opposite end. Like I was always too slow to realize if someone might be into me. And I was no. Very... I'm talking about like at a party, drunk. Oh, that's different. Um, sure, yeah, like uh, misreading social cues thinking that boundaries could be crossed. Right. Yes, I mean, could that be part of an abandonment compensation? Like, uh, I attribute, love me, accept me, take me it, in. It could be. I also attribute maybe most of it or part of it to the abuse thing. Right. Because the boundaries got so washed out. Yeah. Um, but it usually was or always was with someone who was in your life. It wasn't just like a well, random... But I, and I will point out, and I don't know how much you like this part, because at least three of the cases, the the other person had also been abused. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, yeah. And so and, and, I, and also, prob- you know, the ones I can think of that this happened um, uh, gave signals. Exactly. Mostly. Yeah. And so it, it, it never justifies any of this stuff. It's yeah. just that it's so confusing when your head has been messed with in such a manner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. J Spider says... Now that the podcast is, is a bigger part of your life, do you miss having a deeper relationship with clients? Um, it's an interesting question. Yes, I do. Um, in fact, there are times that I, you know, I'll be talking about certain clients and wish that, because there's so many people out there. So there's actually two areas. One is, is clients who have personality disorders of various kinds and are in various spectrums, spectra, who I believe aren't being treated well in, in other therapy. You know, I, I feel bad. I'm like, it's really hard to find the right therapist. They're out there for sure. But, and I have this urge to like save all of them and to treat all of them. <laughs> I'm like come to me. Cause you know, I know what I'm doing and it, it's not going to be easy and I'm not going to, it's not going to be a walk in the park for me either, but I know exactly what I'm doing. Like, yeah. I know exactly what I'm doing when it comes to, it's like a plumber that looks at a broken sink, <laughs> you know, they look at it like, I yeah. know exactly what to do with that. Right. And, and I also know what I'm getting into. I know that we're going to have transference. I know you're going to hate me. I know you're going to fall in love with me or, or you're going to uh, try to get me to reject you. Like, I know that's going to happen. I, I, and I know I'm going to feel bad during those moments. And I, it's just, I, I like precision. I've been, see I've been lined up. I've been yeah. through it, you know, and with other therapists, like they might not know any of this stuff and they're right. going to, they're going to fuck it up as they sometimes do. And not all therapists, of course, plenty of therapists are better than I am at this, but, but yeah, I worry. I have that um, concern sometimes because I, I feel bad for people who, you know, can't find the right therapist. And many of you will email me um, just telling me it's hard to find the right one. And I believe you. The other group of people I feel bad about is I, you know, I shut down my supervision practice. So I no longer mentor, uh, you know, students. I, and I, and I stopped teaching the class that I taught for 11 years straight uh, in which I mentored supervisees. I mean, I taught it even long before that. Anyway, for 20 years, I'd been mentoring novice clinicians right. and that's a very important job like there are so many different uh you know bumps in the road that supervisees will run into emotional and professional and um getting clients and uh motivation and self-care like I, you know i'm i'm there 
you know, their big brother, right. you know, walking them through every there with them while they're struggling. And, you know, they get a divorce in the middle of their beginning of their practice. And I'm there, you know, talking with them about, you know, their life. And it's a huge relationship. And But at your advanced stage, you can't afford to. <laughs> and so with the podcast taking right. up more part of my life, I excised that. Yeah that part of my life completely. I, I don't supervise anyone anymore. Yeah. Um, I do still have some clients, but not many. And so, um, you know, I chose to do that because I wanted yeah. to do those things. And, and uh, you know, I, I still teach, so I'm still in contact with students. And, you know, some of them will just flat out ask me, can can you please mentor me? And right. I'll, I'll say, no, Sorry, I, I, I don't can't. mentor anyone anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, um, uh, the I, I you know apparently I'd I'd rather do the podcast and everything that it entails, but um, I, I very much do do miss that. And um, but there are things about it I don't miss. <laughs> supervising, being, being a therapist, you know, there's not really much about it that I don't like. But being a supervisor, it's you have a lot of responsibility. Like, not only am I there for them, but if they screw things up, I got to catch them. And I got to tell them not to do that. Yeah. And I, I have to dis, I have to determine where they're incompetent and catch them before they run into a problem. <laughs> and I, you know, I consider that my job. Sure. I have to understand the ethics and the laws, and you know, yeah. and like HIPAA. I, I, I read HIPAA. It's this document that is in just very strange language, but I I read it, you know, and I I would. I, I had to do all this other work behind the scenes to like stay up to date on things. I didn't enjoy that. Or I kind of did at the time, but eventually I got wary, you know, and, and, you know, although 90% of my mentees are wonderful people and some of them good friends of mine, um, some of my mentees were not pleasant to work with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, personality clash, let's just say. And, but I had to, I, I was stuck with them, you know, and, and yeah. it, 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 you know, it's one thing to have a student in a class where I'm teaching and then the class is over. It's another thing to have a mentee who I might be working with for 10 years. You know what I mean? You're kind of locked, right. locked it's a long in. commitment. Yeah. And I would lie awake at night kind of like hoping that they wouldn't like do <laughs> something wrong and drag me into court. You know oh, jeez. Because I mean? that would, would happen. Like I, I, I'd be implicated if, if they screwed something oh, up. Oh, man. So, so I don't miss that. <laughs> Um, Alex L., how different is it to do therapy on individuals with personality disorders than people without it? Um, well, everyone, uh, Alex, is on a personality disorder spectrum of some sort in all likelihood. So uh, I don't really know how to answer that question precisely. But um, very brief, briefly, uh, you know, saying what I said before is that I need it's – it's very counter-transference heavy. Uh, people with personality disorders tend to produce – a lot more feelings in me that are difficult to deal with, and I have to be very uh, on my game. Uh, PB Trail Runner says, "Any thoughts on HBO's In Treatment?" Uh, Berto, do you remember uh, us doing an episode on it like ten years ago? In Treatment, you what was you that one? Oh, you don't even remember. So, what was the show? It's a. It was a show with um, God. What's his name? Irish actor. In anyway, treatment. he is a therapist. And every episode is a is a therapy session, and people come into his home office. Wait, I did this, and and we did an episode. You and I did an episode on it. <laughs> really, literally wow. ten years ago. In treatment, or ten years ago, nine years ago, or maybe ten years ago. In yeah. treatment. 
uh, yeah, what's that guy's name? Netflix, it says. Well, it wasn't. Oh, I see. It was Official before Netflix. HBO series. Okay. Um, the guy from Miller's Crossing. What's that guy's name? Anyway. Man. Did you, do you see it? I'm looking. I don't, I don't remember this at all. Oh, well, anyway. So, you don't have any thoughts. Um, my thoughts are that the show, I didn't, you know, everyone always asks me to watch it. And for some reason, I never could, could get myself to watch it for entertainment because it was like watching work. And although the therapist um, in the beginning, I thought was fine, a little not my style, but I know eventually he starts having like sex with his clients, just like every other show. Oh, the, the main guy is from um, Usual Suspects as well, right? Yeah. So uh, I just never watched it because it 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 was it was not entertaining for me to watch. Dude, I never watched the show. Uh, Cutie Rain says. By the way, just I've never watched this show. You did watch one episode because we okay. Maybe I watched one episode because I I have zero recollection of anything about the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, any suggestion on, for an aspiring YouTuber, Berto? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So I would say first and foremost, uh, f- you're gonna have to find a voice. Like, what is it that you're gonna talk about? Um, you need just a little bit of. Uh, setup to start with, but you you actually, if you have a nice iPhone or a nice Samsung phone or something, it's got really nice cameras these days. Uh, but lighting is important. So I'd say the first top three things are first, have a nice camera, have some good lighting, uh, then then have some good audio. And by audio, it's like you know, get a, get a mic and make sure your room sounds okay. But that's just the superficial stuff. Your video actually could look kind of crappy, and the audio could be unideal if you have really good content. Not not great to do it that way, but... And by really good content, that's not something I can tell you what it is. <laughs> I can tell you what videos I like and you can find what videos you like. But what I would say is like, look at the things that you like the most on YouTube and and ask yourself, what what is it about it that you like? Right. And, and if you could remove all the other elements, if you, if you were only left with one element, what is it? And then see if you can from there piece together what is that thing that you could do that would be interesting to someone yeah you know um this podcast is in a rare echelon of podcasts in that we actually you know work for the pot we make enough money or i do to to work full-time on a podcast that's pretty rare you yeah know, of, <laughs> of all the podcasts it's kind of hard um one of the main factors as to why that happened is because I listen to so many podcasts and always have well before I even started my own podcast. Um, I've talked about this before, but my app, my phone app keeps track of how many hours I listen to podcasts. And um, a, a couple of years ago, it, it calculated that I listen to eight hours of podcasts every day <laughs> on average. Yeah. So half of my waking life, yeah, I am listening to podcasts. That means like exercising, doing the laundry, yeah, yeah. Uh, driving to the store, even walking around the grocery store. I'm still listening to podcasts, yeah. you know. And so um, I am a massive consumer of of a lot of different kind of podcasts. And I also, as I was making this podcast over the years, I was always refining it. I would hear something in another podcast, a style or a thing. And I'd say like, ooh, I want to do something like that. 
Um, and I would do it and then I would experiment with it and I would listen back to the pot, you know? So when you're making a YouTube, uh, I I find a lot of people are like, I want to make a YouTube channel and I'll be like, well, what channels do you watch? You're like, Oh, I don't know. I'm like, in all likelihood, you're going to make a shitty ass YouTube channel because Mm -hmm. if you don't actually consume YouTube channels, right. Uh, you don't really know the landscape, you know, you're going to create something. It's not going to, it's not likely to be very good. So, um, so yeah, as Bruno's saying, watch other YouTube channels that you like and try to learn from that. Yeah. The other thing I'll say, and we've, we've given advice before, but, uh, something I haven't said before is I would start short at first, like three minutes. Um, if you can't condense down your point, Unless it absolutely requires it to be super long, like it's an investigative story of some kind. Sure. But if you're just like, I want to make a video about how to cook or something, you know, I want to do a Yeah, don't a special, do a two-hour recipe. Yeah, do, <laughs> do three minutes, you know, because if it's good, people will, are, are much more likely to watch it if it's short and, you know, yeah. and brief than if it's long, you know. Um, plus longer videos tend to be watched by fans right. and short videos tend to be watched by the masses. And you can't get to the fans without some initial. <laughs> right. Or masses. at the very, or at the very least put everything that needs to be learned in the first couple minutes. And then if you need to, you, and it could span later, yeah. there are so many YouTube channels. When I click on them, I'm like, <laughs> Oh, who's this? You know, I'll just check out who these people. And, you know, if if I'm still if I'm watching two three minutes in, and that's a long time, and I'm like, where is this headed? Yeah, where are we going? Especially when the title is why you clicked on it, and they don't get to the title yeah until twenty minutes thirty minutes later. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, honestly, if I get forty five seconds into a video like that, <laughs> I will, and I didn't get what I came, or at least I didn't get when I was going to get that thing. I will never watch that channel again. Right. I, I will say, because of all the channels on YouTube, I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm done, once. I'm done with you. Now, maybe yeah. you're great. I don't know, but not for me. Yeah. Like, you've burned me once. Like, I'm not going to do that again. You know, the Vlog bro- Brothers, for instance, they get into it right away. The first sentence. Yeah. Like, it is sentence one, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. they don't mess around. They don't go like... So, you know, there's so many YouTube channels where they start off, they're like, um, wow, you know, they're, they're like checking in with their audience or something. And I'm just like, what are you doing? I know. Like, the ones that are very puzzling to me are edited versions of a very long thing. Because I get it. If you're doing like a live show every day, that's like three hours long. But then they edit a clip for YouTube and they still keep a lot of the dead air. Yeah. It's like, why? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but what do I know? Maybe there's some other um, way of making a wonderful YouTube channel. Well, the, uh, I guess the one counterpoint to try if you want to, especially if you're, you know, anyways, if you have some really creative ideas and you, maybe you haven't even seen a lot of videos or whatever, you know, try the, the TikTok type of format or the YouTube shorts. It's such a low hanging, uh, like the, the stakes are low. Yeah. You just make little videos. Some, see if something sticks and at the very least it'll get you moving the muscles it'll get you putting content out and who cares and by the way make a throwaway channel to start with just to like practice but when you actually have a specific idea like okay I think I know what I want to do 
then get very, you know, like get the meticulous aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all these um, tricks that, like, back in the day when the YouTube, our YouTube channel wasn't very popular. I mean, we, we would get like a thousand views every episode, which is, you know, quite a bit when you yeah. think about it. But on YouTube's standards, it's like basically zero. That, um, you know, occasionally we would look into how to increase SEO and click rates and stuff. And there's all these tips you'll see on YouTube, like how to get more clicks, how yeah. to get more. And, and, you know, there's certain things that you have to follow, like your title has to, and you have to have certain tags and you have to in, involve certain keywords in the description. As someone who never did any of that, when I started making 90 Day Fiancé reaction videos, my numbers completely took off. Yeah. You know, they went from 500 to 1,000 on a video to almost a million yeah. on one of my videos. You know what I mean? And so, and I didn't do any of those tricks. Yeah. What I did is I created content that people wanted to watch. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, when you watch these tips, none of them say... Create content that people want to watch. <laughs> maybe your content sucks. Maybe you have low numbers because right. your content isn't... I mean, I wouldn't say our content was bad. It just wasn't geared towards YouTube. It was us yeah. talking for two hours That's right. with no visuals. And so um, you need to create content that is compelling, that people want to watch. And so um, that's a hard thing to do. And if we had advice on that, we'd be billionaires. Um, Oliver asked a question. Any update Any update on on YouTube or on Discord? Any updates on when there's going to be a schizoid or schizotypal deep dive? Um, soon. Um, I, my life has been in, you know, I moved recently and other, and it was a very, and still is a very stressful move. There's been, I could go into details about things just to highlight one of the stresses of moving was our, our address is new. So we're not registered with places and, um, this is something I didn't know was a thing, but like um, I had to trick some utility companies into believing I lived at a different address so we could get our utilities. Oh my God. <laughs> so imagine trying to trick like the cable company yeah. or the water, PSE and stuff. you know, yeah. trying to, when they show up to the house, I'm trying to convince them this is a different address. Yeah. And, and, and all the while worrying if they figure out that I'm, tricking them right they'll turn off all my utilities yeah and, I, and i'll and i won't and i'll never be able to get them you know what i mean um <sighs> so that's just you know lying awake at night like worrying about all of our utilities being shut off electricity water internet um that's just like 10 percent of the stress that i've been <laughs> over the past so when that gets ironed out which i I feel like maybe January will be when I can finally kind of kick back and have some free time. Um, I want to do a whole slew of deep dives, including the schizoid and schizotype. Um, Laura asks, are there any plans for a Birdo Bob Kirk crossover episode? Ooh. Are there any that I have missed? What do you think, Birdo? Oh, we should, we did one a while ago, like a long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah. um, People who listen to the podcast are like, sometimes it's it's Bob, sometimes it's Birdo, sometimes it's Rebecca, sometimes it's just me. Um, what I learned, so back in the day, I used to always 
um, want two co-hosts. You know, right. originally it was you and Lita. Yep. And so, and then for a while it was you and Mandy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I always had this format of it's me and then you and someone else. Um, it, and usually it was like, I want that other person to always be, you know, like uh, Lita had the, but she moved. Right. Mandy had work stuff that she, so she couldn't do the podcast anymore. Paulette was only kind of halfway into it to begin with. Jody yeah. moved out of town. Yeah, we and tried so, a few a few others in the, in the middle of that. Yeah. yeah, and so I always had that model, but and so um, you know, and there have been times in the recent years where I've had uh, two co-hosts on the time on the podcast. But what I find is that it the you know two two is so much easier to manage mm-hmm. when there's three people, things get out of control real fast. And if it's a fun episode, then it's great. But if it's like a meaty topic, yeah. if it's you and someone else, I find that the conversation can easily go off the rails. Like as a simple a visual, it's like I'm driving the bus and occasionally I go, um, I, I take my hands off the wheel and you're in the passenger seat and you just kind of grab the wheel and, and turn it, but then I, I'm sitting in the driver's seat. Right. And then I quickly can grab the wheel and get us back on track. Um, if there's two people, the analogy is I'm driving and then I take my hands off the wheel and then the third person sits in my seat and I go in the back seat and I can't get back to the wheel because right. <laughs> there's two people up in the front of the bus. You know what I mean? And what if it's not even a bus, but it's like an elephant? Yeah. <laughs> And then we're not even driving. We're like in a safari. Yeah. And then we get attacked by monkeys. Are you the monkey? <laughs> um, so uh, this is an example of the bus going off the. <laughs> oh, I get it. So uh, having a Birdo Bob uh, both on the, at the at the same time, um, and also Birdo and Bob are very different co-hosts who bring very different energy to it. And when I've experimented with that in the past, it didn't go well. It, yeah. it didn't go terribly, but it's not a chemistry that works well. And so, so Lita and I and M- Mandy and I were good, especially because at the time we did a lot of fun episodes and it was uh, like, you know, yeah, good, we just good chemistry improv and laugh. Yeah. And yeah, you and Lita and Jody. And oh, yeah, Jody. Jody, we did a lot of in situ episodes where we would go to places. And yeah. Um, yeah, you had great chemistry and we had a format and everything. Um, <clears throat> but Bob. He he kind of um he kind of turtles when it's chaotic on the podcast. You mm-hmm. know, he sort of he sort of pulls himself way back. So like, you need a pace and a quiet yeah, I get Yeah. It. Like there was that time when we had him on the thousandth show. Right. Him and Drain yeah, and you yeah. and we did that hot sauce thing. Oh yes. It, it was kind of a chaotic mess. And uh <laughs> and Bob like I could just see him shutting down during the oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um last question, Berto. Uh Maria says, "What are your thoughts on bibliotherapy, Berto?" Bibliotherapy, like therapy with books? Yeah. Where you like, "Oh, it's interesting." Oh yeah, I could totally see this. You read a book, the book, you know, it's like a book club. When you're reading a book in a book club, you have all these thoughts about the characters and what it means to you and all these things, uh, especially if it's a book dealing with 
you know, it could be dealing with trauma or similar things. I could totally see that. You read a book, maybe you even pick a book that is in a related area, and maybe it doesn't even have to be the whole book. You know, you could read uh, a chapter or something like that. Um, it might be hard with a fiction book because you'd be lost, but <laughs> I could see it being very valuable, actually, because I know that when I have, and I haven't been in many book clubs, but in my brief experiences, I find it... Oh, actually, you know what? When you and I do episodes where we're going over a movie, for example, or a show, uh, and maybe I've read the book, there's always some therapy opportunities there because we're always talking about how this character felt, this relation, this dysfunctional thing, and then a lot of times I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I can relate to that because of this, that, and the other thing. Right. So I could see it. Yeah. Um, I've never formally used bibliotherapy, but, uh, yeah, I'm all for it. I. Uh, it, it would require me to do some prep that I'm not fond of <laughs> in that area. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I've seen it used to good effect in the way that Berta was talking about. All right. Well, that was a fun, Berto, for the most part, fun, but all Berto questions episode. Final word, Berto. You know what? I'm going to uh, read a book because it's been a while. And the book I think I'm going to read, because I just listened to Dune on uh, tape well not tape but, <laughs> but I think the book I'm going to read has to be fiction maybe a little mystery so do you have any recommendations for me uh, mystery yeah I mean I'm not the right person to answer we should ask, ask people to send us their recommendations oh okay well how can they contact Discord. you how can they contact you Discord. directly okay Berdo AMA <clears throat> Ber- go to the Berdo AMA on Discord yeah and suggest suggest books, books I should for, read that yeah. are I like, you know, fiction and mystery. And tag Birdo in it. Uh, yeah. Birdo's tag is just Birdo. Yeah. Um, all right, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>